You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. Can I talk to you for a sec? Go on. Looking for love. It's frightening. I mean, what else is there? Exactly. What about love? Well, love's not something you can plan for, is it? You just never know what's going to happen. Stop him! What do I want you to do? Stay out of trouble. That's cold. I'm watching you. He dumps me, man. Breaks my heart. I saw him kissing some baldy fella. Kissing a baldy fella? You don't just hook up with the next fella walks by. When you join us over here, we got some business. A proposition. So we hold a girl for an hostage. Disguise her identity. I got them in the joke shop so we can drive the bloke to the bank. Well, vengeance, man. It's not about the money. It's too big, and I wouldn't recommend you get involved either. Hello, and welcome to Above the Title, a podcast about the career of Colin Farrell and the changing and evolving state of the 21st century movie star. I'm Cole. I'm Connor. And today, this afternoon, I guess, we are closing out our month and a half long investigation into Colin Farrell's insane 2003, insane six movie 2003 with the nice little capper on that year. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think the best of the 2003 movies. Oh, yeah. Um, mm, Yeah, yeah. Because you don't like Phone Booth. I think this one's the best. I think this one's by far yeah, well, the best. I, well, for- I, I, need to, I need to rethink about it for a second because that was not that was not like a conversation I was having with myself before you just mentioned it right now. I, it um, literally, it was literally just a thought I had right now. But just, just to recap, yeah. his, his 2003 is Phone Booth, The Recruit, Daredevil, Veronica Guerin, SWAT, and this week's movie, which is Intermission. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I'm yeah, of the okay. opinion that of the first five of those, only one of them is good. Uh, and I think you're of that opinion, too. You just like Veronica Guerin and I like Phone Booth. No, I think out of those first four or five, Phone Booth is better than I think Phone Booth is better than Veronica Guerin. Yeah, I don't want you to get me wrong. Phone Booth is better than <laughs> Veronica Guerin. I just think I just think Phone Booth isn't like the uh I, I think phone booth in some ways has a reputation today of of being almost like a hitchcockian film yeah. and i it is it but pitched to i know no, no, no. i mean hitchcockian in terms of quality as well as yeah, in terms Hitchcock of you know stinkers. what it's intending to do he did i i don't think i don't think um that's a hot take but i think there are aspects of phone booth that just make me scratch my head and, and question like why it's like that why it was done that way why they decided to go down certain routes um i think this movie has you could ask some similar questions but i think this film probably pulls off what it's attempting to do better than phone booth much I mean, better I, than veronica Guerin. 
much I much better than daredevil much much better than swat much much better than oh. am i missing one am i forgetting one you're forgetting about the recruit oh the recruit oh that the recruit is the recruit has got to be the most the most forgettable of all of this of yeah all of but you know what yeah. i like it more than half of those movies yeah there's some fun stuff in the first half I like when they make out in the garage. I like when they make out in the garage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this week, though, we are talking about Intermission, a 2003 slash 2004. Actually, we should we should put a, a bit of an asterisk on this um, because if we are counting. And, and this is just shows how little like pre ahead research either of us do that we are kind of thinking of this one movie at a time and glancing at our list. Uh, If we are counting Phone Booth as a 2003 movie, we probably should be counting this as a 2004 movie because it only comes out in Ireland in 2003. Um, Yeah. And the rest of the world, it just does festival runs in 2003 and comes out in early 2004. So really... You, you, you got to not count either phone booth on the one end or this on the other end. He only made five movies in 2000. He only had five movies in 2003. Uh, still a, in a kind of sense. He only had window in one sense. He only had four really in 2003. If, if yeah. we're not going to count phone booth and we're not going to count this. I think you have to count one um, of them. I'm saying you got to count one of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, I want to ask you a question. Ask me a question. Uh, because. <laughs> Obviously, you know, this could change once we get to the end of this season, this series that we're doing on Colin Farrell. Um, but I feel like this is probably the 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 least known film that he is in that probably deserves to be known a little bit more than it is. Do you kind of you get what I'm saying? Because, um, like, I think people know of Tigerland, even if nobody has watched Tigerland. And I think. A lot of people, a lot of people in the cinephile sphere know of Miss Julie, even if that nobody movie, like, knows about Miss Julie. You don't think so? No. I don't know. I think Miss Julie is only notable because the letterbox algorithm always pumps it up first in search results when you're looking for <laughs> the Alf Salzburg uh, Miss Julie that it's a remake of. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to keep that in mind. As we as we go through this, and this is an interesting proposition. I don't really want to land one way or another. Yeah. Uh, because we're only 11 movies in. We have, you know, 45 movies to go. I just think like and for I somebody like that, me, this yeah. this movie is kind of like the example of this film is almost like the reason to do a podcast experiment, like the one that we are embarking yes. on. Because yes. even for somebody like me who has studied Irish film, has really like engaged with a lot of Irish cinema, I've only come across this film mentioned on lists. I've never seen it talked about. I've never um, engaged with its content in any way whatsoever. Like I've literally only seen it on lists of Irish films. And doing this podcast with you has given me the excuse to watch it. And I feel like there is a lot of value here. Um it's a very interesting piece and I, I, there are parts of it that are genuinely moving and parts of it that are genuinely shocking and provoking in a way that I think like we all wish um, good films would be. Uh, it's definitely a marker of its time when it was made, which I also find very interesting. And 
uh, I just don't think I would ever have had the reason to watch it otherwise. Yeah. Aren't you glad I, I put my foot down and was like, we got to be completionists now. <laughs> yeah, no, I <laughs> appreciate it. But no, I, I, I think you're right because I think it's a two pronged thing. One is that this movie is really, really, really fucking good. Right. Like yeah. it, 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 it's great. It's, it's quietly terrific. The other thing, it has such a stacked pedigree of it's like insane. It's insanity behind the cast it that this film that has and the people involved not, in its not making. Just the ca- yeah. It's not just the cast. It's the director too. Um, the director, the editor, but like, they're all people outside of Colin Farrell, who I do think kind of have the bit of the stink of also ran around them. If if you get what I'm saying, interesting. I'm let, yeah. let, let, let me list this off, and then then I'll then I'll make my point. Um, this week's movie is the 2003 film Intermission, uh, directed by John Crowley, written by Marco Rao, uh, produced by Neil Jordan. I'm sure he had very little actual involvement, but produced by the great actor Neil Jordan, starring <clears throat> Colin Farrell, Kelly McDonald, Killian Murphy, Colm Meany, Shirley Henderson, David Wilmot, Deidre O'Kane, Michael McElliton, and Thomas O. Chevalin. I think that's Chevalin. Uh, I'm not good at pronouncing Irish. And Brian o- Brian F. O'Byrne. I think I think it's all. Show, yeah, O'Shaven, 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 yeah. Um, I want you want to say you want to say you're reading it, but I think in Irish it's O'Sh, it's yeah, O'Shaven, right? O'Shaven. Okay, it's so hard for us Americans to get a hold of this. <laughs> I think, and I, I want to touch in on these people, but Kelly McDonald, Killian Murphy, Call Meany, and Shirley Henderson to a lesser degree. Shirley Henderson to a lesser degree. And Killian Murphy kind of on the other end of maybe not. I feel like if you go back to 2003, 2004, when this movie's coming out, those are all people who feel like they're really about to blow up mm-hmm. in the well, States. And I think even with Killian, the, the past 20 years have not borne that out to the degree that we thought it was going to for them. And that's what's interesting about this movie is outside of Colin, Colin has too big of a filmography for a movie like this to stand out as a crown jewel. And it's not like any of those other people are attracting attention to it. Whereas if Killian Murphy were like 20% more famous, I think people would care. But if they're going to go back, they're only going to go back to 28 days. Kelly Murphy saying? is such an interesting test case for us to talk about. I can't wait to, He's to jump your into this guy. more. That's the other yeah. thing about this one that I'm excited about talking about is that you've got you've got your guy and you've got my girls. I know, yeah. Because I think about Kelly McDonald and Shirley Henderson the same way you think about Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy is um, when he the first time he and Colin Farrell are on screen together. I, my brain, I almost had a stroke. Like I couldn't comprehend <sighs> what I was looking at. <laughs> so it was so strange to me. And I think I think part of it is um they clearly well, I, I don't know in depth as to the methods that they use for their performances, but um they exist in my head as such different actors, such different energies about them that seeing them in the same space within the same scene was like transfixing. It like stopped time for me for a second just to like take in what I was looking at, the fact that 
uh, these two figures were were sharing dialogue together. I think, you know, we talked about this weirdly in our first episode. Um, because I think we also mentioned Killian in that first episode. Um, but I kind of floated this idea back when we were starting the show in the first couple episodes that Colin Farrell, I think his greatest strength as an actor is just his sheer natural empathy. Yeah. Do, do, do you remember that argument I made that 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 he is all he is a he is a deeply honest and reactive actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that can be a weakness for him sometimes because it, it can mean he can get a little unmoored, but only sometimes I think in the best case, and especially in smaller movies like this, where he really gets to to play off people, you know, there's there's just a very natural honesty to him. Killian Murphy, on the other hand, not that he doesn't have those more naturalistic skills, but he's such, he looks like a Greek statue, right? He has, <laughs> yeah. he has such this, he's so beautiful and he has such this striking, you know, powerful jagged face. And I think that combines the fact, the fact that he is best known in the States for his collaborations with Chris Nolan, who is not a natural director, right? That Chris mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Nolan's movies are so arch and stylized and like borderline abstracted, and he feels so at home in those spaces that I think it's just kind of weird to see Killian doing like riffy improv hangout stuff. Because Colin, for all that Colin is also beautiful, I think Colin kind of feels like an actual person in a way that Killian Murphy feels sometimes like a god who has descended to us yeah and you get what i'm saying i do and to bring it back to like to bring it back to the running discussion that we've been having for weeks now about whether colin is a movie star or not i i think to sidestep that that may be binary for a second and just look at um how he's used best if you look at something like banshees where he's really able to act with his eyes and and able to just satiate in the dialogue that he's given. And I think you brought this up at one point, the fact that like, to the best of our knowledge, none of these films that we're going to be looking at are strict romantic comedies, unless just one comes out of the woodwork that you or I have never really heard of before. Um, I, I think I think we got some real like romantic melodramas coming down the pipe. Yeah. But but no, no good rom-com. But I think there is I think there is a fact about Colin just as an actor and as a figure that is like like you say, like the ease of empathy that he that he gains from the viewer, I think would lead well to these kinds of like domestic melodramas that he has clearly at the in the beginning of his career and like streaking late into his career was never really given the opportunity to embark on. and then Killian, on the other hand, or I guess what I'm saying is you want to see Colin in a role like that. You you yeah. almost want to see Colin in the role that Killian has in this film um, in mm. some sense. Although it would be, I think, difficult to wrap your head around someone that beautiful being so lovesick um, or someone as. Because like you say, Killian's not like nobody on earth looks the way Killian. Kill, Killian, Killian you know is I mean? beautiful in like an angelic way. Colin yeah. is beautiful in like a guy you see on the street way. Colin it's, looks like a rock star. Yeah. And Killian looks, Killian like does look like a statue. Alien. Because he's you should, like you say, he's chiseled. Superman. 
Like his dimensions are chiseled, but they're also soft. Like he's got these yes, big, he's got so these big weird. lips, and, and, and he's the, got these round cheekbones, and, and, and like the bluest <laughs> eyes anyone's bluest, ever had, the it's, most piercing eyes you can possibly imagine. I mean, I I actually completely understand why Killian never really took off as like an A list movie star in the states, and it's just because he's he is actually too pretty. I do think that's part of it, and I it's it's crazy when you look at all the films that he was in the running for and just never got cast. It's because you know it's, I mean? it's Bert, Bert Lancaster had the benefit of being like big, right? Yeah. In a way that offset how how fucking like angelically, strangely beautiful his face was. Killian's so frail and skinny that all you look at are those eyes. And it's it's a weird energy to have. And I understand why he you're going to get past him. He would have been a terrible Batman. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know if he would have been terrible. It would have been a completely different film. It, it would have I been don't... a completely different representation of the Batman character. Yeah. I mean, he yes, and yes, Christian clearly. Bale do not share like aesthetic characteristics other than having dark hair. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred, a hundred percent. And you look at his it, career, like the stuff he's best known in the U.S. for. And you look at 28 Days Later, Batman Begins, Red Eye, um, Sunshine. Have you seen seen Red Eye? I have, yeah. It it, it is not a very good movie, but he's great. And actually, yeah, it's almost the best uses of him in a lot of the best uses of him in Hollywood movies. You know, the Batman movies, Red Eye, even Sunshine, where he's the hero, Mm -hmm. like kind of flips the script of something like this or 28 days or even like professor Pluto and really makes him this more unsettling, you know, borderline violent figure who kind of can charm you immediately, but there's that danger lying behind everything, which is not present in this movie, even though this is a movie about like a nice sad sack, ordinary guy who turns violent. Right. But there's none of that, like, you know, scarecrow teetering on the edge of screaming at you in any given scene. Yeah. He gives in those Batman performances. Or if you think more explicitly in Dunkirk, where he's literally playing someone who's traumatized to the point of crossing the line back and forth between. um, I don't know, like it's like spastic, violent outburst and catatonic regret of the things they just recently lived through i know you think he's gonna get an oscar this year nomination this year i think it's like almost guaranteed man um if the movie i think if the movie satisfies well it will i think it's almost guaranteed that he gets i almost think it's a guarantee that he wins if the movie satisfies what we're expecting of it which is a, a task that um to say right now seems almost impossible the expectations I mean, that we as a movie going public have placed on uh oppenheimer uh gonna be a great movie um i don't think he's gonna get an oscar nomination for it but i do think it like they probably could have gotten him an oscar nomination for dunkirk if they had wanted i think they could to. have if they tried if yeah. they had really tried for which is interesting because his character's unnamed in that movie um He's only credited as Shivering Soldier. I'm not going to be like it's a non-element of him getting an Oscar nomination this year. I just have a feeling it's not going to happen. I just think like if we're in this moment right now where 
the most immense appetite in my memory throughout my lifetime to have a film that kind of exists as the old idea of what a big, meaningful Hollywood temple blockbuster yes. important movie should be. Oppenheimer is maybe the most important one that we have approached in the time that I've been alive and the time that I've, I've been conscious of the way that Hollywood exists. Yes, but what you're failing to understand is that Robert Downey Jr. is going to suck up all the oxygen in that room. I know. And I People also are, you, you, you know, what you, know you know, my suspicion too, that I feel like there's a secret. I feel like there is a secret moment in the movie that's meant to give Damon like yes. oh, a yeah. moment to shine. Yeah. And America has Damon fever because of how well air did. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. But like, okay. You talk about, we want these classical, big, epic, serious movies for adults back on the big screen. There's this like yearning for these types of movies, right? Yeah. You know what is the only yearning greater than that in the public consciousness for people who are inclined towards that? It is the desire for is the Dowdy Jr. making a real movie again thing. Yeah, that is that, true. That lies so much unspoken, but and he's got that fucking Park Chan Wook thing coming out too. Did you see the trailer for that? But also, Cole, in recent years, you can't you can't count you can't discount the fact that a lot of actors are winning awards for the same film. No, they aren't. It happened this year. It happened this year. I feel like At it's happened Oscars. other times recently. All right, I'll hold on. I'm yeah. gonna do a little digging. No, I, I have I, I haven't seen the trailer, but I've seen the stills from the um Park Chan Wook. Uh, project uh, that you're talking you know, about. You know what the gimmick is, right? He plays twins, right? He, no, 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 no. He's playing every villainous American oh, character. That's what it is, yeah. So he plays like <laughs> six different characters over yeah. the course of the show. Um, okay, the last time two actors, I'm just looking at the Oscars here. The last time two actors won an Oscar for the same movie, before everything ever all at once, of course, was... I should be able to do this off the top of my Drum head. Drum roll. Boom, it's boom, three boom, it's boom, three boom, billboards. Boom, 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 boom. So it's oh, three man. billboards five years ago. Yeah. And then I think you might have to go. That's Francis and um Francis and, and uh, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Did I ever tell you that I may possibly be related to Sam Rockwell? You We're did get, not tell we'll me. We'll get this into that. Later. No, no, tell me, tell me the story. Um, I believe his mother's last name is and my last name is. <laughs> Maybe we should cut this out of the episode. Nope, it's in there now. It's in there now. Your last thing was and, in the um, and it's both uh, New York families that extend a long time. And I've been told by an aunt who does like family tree work that it's possible that we're yeah. related to each other. Yeah. Did you see that McConaughey and Harrelson might be brothers? I did. I don't understand, though, because... <laughs> The their their um, conspiracy theory is that his mother gave birth to Woody and then handed Woody off to yeah. It's so Woody's funny. Mom. It's so I funny. just like is it? But I don't. What I don't understand is isn't McConaughey's mom alive? I don't know. I'm. You know, dude, they can't just go dude, ask her, dude, dude. Dude, you gotta just let McConaughey talk his shit. You know, McConaughey, McConaughey applies a. Uh, process to life that I, I don't doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but My, I love it. I love it, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The single greatest moment in any talk show ever is when McConaughey and Snoop Dogg are on, I think it's Kimmel, 
promoting the beach bum. Oh, and <laughs> and Kimmel asks McConaughey, so, th- which is which is incidentally the story where Snoop Dogg tells talks about giving the notes he gave Harmony Corinne on the script, which is an incredible story. But then Mc- McConaughey gets asked something about like how he got in the headspace headspace to play Moon Dog, and he responds by telling a story that someone told him that was told to the person telling it to him. Right. So he's telling a story like second or third hand about a guy wooing his wife by kidnapping her and taking her out to sea for like two days. Yeah. And that's all he does. That's, that's the entire answer he gives. And he refuses to talk about anything else. You gotta just let McConaughey go. Cole, do you remember what Snoop Dogg's character's name is in uh, the Beach Bum? It's my yeah, okay. it's my favorite character name of like any. You know movie the ever. story behind that? I don't. I've never looked it up. When Harmony Corinne wrote the script and sent it to Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg was playing himself. That was the pitch. Now, obviously, you watch the movie, and that character is a famous rapper. But he's would have been way a, worse, though. I feel like it would have been way worse. Drug, if it he's was... also a drug kingpin, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, like uh, like a hobbyist, like a drug no, hobbyist kingpin. He, he, he's moving some serious weight. Um, he is, no, but he that's the funny part about yeah. it. It's like he is, but he seems to not take it seriously in any way whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. No, he's very chill, but he's like, he's a famous rapper, but he's also like a drug kingpin who ends up fleeing the country at the end of that movie. So not entirely based on Snoop Dogg. But that was in the script. The version in the script was that Snoop was also running drugs on the side in his 50s. And Snoop read the script and he was like, I like it, but I'm not sure that I can like properly act if I'm having to play myself. How can I figure this out? And then he went back to Harmony Krim was like, I have one request. <laughs> Change his name to lingerie. <laughs> And, that's and, and once once the character wasn't named Snoop Dogg, Snoop was like, I can inhabit this man now. It's up there with um, the dude from Tropic Thunder being named Al Pacino. It's so good. It's up there it's with so that. Yeah. The Peach Bum is like one of the great movies ever made. Yeah, um, I don't know if I go that far. Uh, one of the great movies ever made. A it's great- one of... I think it's one of the easiest recommended movies ever made, which if that qualifies it as one of the great movies ever made, then I'm in. Watch, watch that movie. And I need you to think about something when you're watching that movie, Connor. You need to realize that that entire movie is about how much Harmony Corinne loves his wife. Yeah. And when you crack into that mindset, that, that, that it is just, he, I get really emotional when I think about the beach, but he, he gave an interview I know. Sorry, I saw him do a Q and A after a screening where he said he hates filmmaking, um, and he would much rather just paint. But he kind of like gets to the point where he feels like he has to make a movie and get it out of his system. And part of the reason he does that is that his wife uh, really likes his movies because uh-huh. uh, she's obviously in a lot of his movies, but she's not yeah. in the Beach Bum. Uh, but she's in a lot of his movies. And then you think about that that movie is about a guy who's a genius poet who just wants to fuck around, but he is inspired to like write and live a good life because his wife is so moved by his poetry. And that's all that matters to him, really. The party doesn't matter. The money doesn't matter. The drugs doesn't matter. She, oh God, I fucking love the Beach Bum. All right, all right I'm enough sold. Certified great movie. Stalling. Enough stalling, Connor. Tell us what happens in the movie intermission. All right. Uh, again, this is the movie intermission. Um, 
I think this is best to go by, try to go character by character, right? See what their story sure. is. Sure. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. Hold on. I'm going to set a timer. Oh my God. This is impossible. <laughs> you have 90 seconds. <laughs> go. All right. The movie begins with Colin Farrell, who is Lakeef. He is a, uh, a residential hooligan in the Irish town. I think it's Dublin. I can't, I don't really remember. Kelly McDonald is Deirdre, who plays Killian Murphy's John's uh, ex-girlfriend. They're taking a break, a transmission, you could say. And she has moved on to an older married man played by some guy from Game of Thrones. Can't remember his name. Um Killian Murphy is really sad. He works in a supermarket. He hates it. He has a friend who can't get laid and is also sad because they can't get laid and they put like a one steak sauce in their tea and I haven't tried it, but I really want to. Um, Shirley Henderson is a girl who kind of has a mustache because she was dating a guy in London who tied her to the bed and took a shit on her and took all her money and left. That's a true thing that happens in the movie. I'm not making that up off the top of my head. So for whatever reason, she has a mustache and there's a guy who drives a bus and the bus flips over because it's this kid who just loves throwing rocks through people's windshields as they drive down the road. And then, uh, where am I going? Colin Farrell convinced. Oh, there's also Colmini plays a cop who just like wants to beat the shit out of people all day long. That's the only thing he wants to do. And there's a guy who plays like a BBC reporter, although it's not BBC. It's probably like ETF or I can't remember what the Irish television station is, but wants to make like 60 minute segments about the streets of Dublin. Um, Colin Farrell recruits Kelly Murphy to kidnap Deirdre, who's Kelly McDonald again, to to trick her new lover, who's the the bank manager, into stealing money from the bank. Um, it's kind of the same thing that happens in Wanda, right? And time. Is it the same? That's the same thing that happens in Wanda, isn't it? I, they hold the family hostage. It's and been then, a yeah. minute since I've seen Wanda. Uh, just just to blow through what you missed. You got you got through a good chunk of it. I would say the two things you missed were Billy Henderson and Kelly McDonald are. Sisters. sisters yeah um so that's kind of how this web of connections is linked between those two sisters in a way killian murphy's friend who is sleeping with older women briefly has an affair with deirdre's new husband's estranged wife and then yeah they tried to rob the bank they try to get this guy to rob the bank for them um his wife finds them they get into a fight in the street the whole thing falls apart uh killian murphy comes back and rescues Deirdre from Colin Farrell, who's gone violent. Well, he doesn't uh, really rescue her. He's he, he, he tries he more. To. No, he more. He shows up to tell Colin Farrell that they didn't get the money yeah. because the guy's wife decided to go attack him while he was walking out of the bank with the briefcase yeah. full of money. And during that interaction, they kind of get in a tussle because Colin Farrell had punched Deirdre in the face beforehand. And Colin Farrell shoots Killian Murphy, which made me go yell oh my god while i was watching on my ipad and my girlfriend was like what what's wrong (laughs) like is there something that matter because i don't usually get shaken like this while watching movies twice twice he got hurt and he panicked twice during this film i yelled oh my god at the screen in the beginning when colin farrell punches the coffee barista in the face who does he punch what's your name oh my god okay so all of me it's carrie condon that's Carrie Condon. That's a young, that's a baby Carrie Condon. Yeah. Are you for real? I'm a hundred percent. It's a baby. I didn't Carrie recognize Condon. her at all. It's She's in the credits her... when the credits roll by. Yeah. It's one of her first movies. No way. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. She has so... like one line and then she shows up later in the movie and I laughed out loud. It's such a good gag. It is. Actually, she shows up twice throughout the film Spider-Man. and each time they're like, they're pretty funny. Um, The first scene of this movie is incredible. Yeah. I just want to recap it. This movie begins 
with Colin Farrell flirting with a barista in a coffee shop within a mall. And he's telling her about how he had a rough childhood and he's trying to get his life on track and he's lived a crazy life already, but now he just wants to buy an apartment and buy household appliances, which is shown throughout the film to be a true thing that he's interested in doing. Like probably the thing that he's most obsessed with doing is just settling down and owning an apartment, owning like nice, uh, cutterly and nice, like a nice microwave and a nice coffee machine and things like that. And, um, he's going on these like long monologues about how to get his life in order, how to get a routine and, and she about how, yeah, about how about love to can fuck fit this guy that. on the counter. Right. And she's looking at him with these eyes. Like this is the most interesting man I've ever seen in my entire life. If I could leave everything I've ever known right now, and spend the rest of my life with him. If he asked me to, I would leave with him right now. And Colin Farrell proceeds to punch her right in the mouth. He, he doesn't just steal all the money out of the, he, but the it's cash not just It's not just that he punches her in the face. It's that he punches her in the face like mid-work. Like yes. he's just he's just going and he's laying it on. And, and he starts to say like, you don't know anything about me. I could punch you in the face right now. And he hasn't even gotten half of the sentence and she's on the ground. It's so scary. I think he's saying, I think she asks him, like, how does love fit into this plan that you have about reorienting your life? And he says, well, you can't plan for love. Love just happens. And he's like, this right now between us, that could be love. Or we could just want to fuck and get it over with and never talk to each other ever again, which would be nice. And then a customer leaves the store. And then he says, or who knows, I could just be a thief who's here just to rob the place. And she asks what? And he proceeds to just punch her right in the mouth. Yeah, but it's it's so sudden. It comes out of nowhere. It's such a, I mean, it's it's an incredible little like one act play almost. Yep. And then the cops um, chase him out of the mall and he steals a shovel and he jumps on top of a woman's car who's just screaming at the windshield with her hands up. And he's about to smash the windshield with the shovel, freeze frame, and it zooms in on his face. And that's how the movie begins. Also, just to uh, unbelievable, he, unbelievable. Beginning he doesn't just punch her in the face. He like beats the shit out of her. Yeah. It's like it, it is a real like almost. Scorsese-esque, honestly, like turn on a dime of this guy that you thought was being charming is actually like terrifying. There's a lot of blood in this film, surprisingly. Yeah, this movie is weirdly, this movie's like kind of violent. I did notice that like critics at the time were having like a hard time parsing how casually violent this movie is. Yeah, Um, I would argue that I don't think this movie is casually violent. I think that's I think the way the violence is represented in this film, what it does is it brings reality into the story. But it's very ordinary, right? It's ordinary, but it's saying that like, these type of things are ordinary. Like they do happen in real life. Oh, this movie movie has insane amounts of melodrama. Yeah, but but when I'm saying the violence in this movie is casual, I um that that is what I mean that it is treated as almost quotidian. No, I get what you mean. Yeah, I get. Like, I, I under, but I'm saying in terms of like the the maybe like maybe in terms of like a critical hit that this film might take yeah. because of the violence that's yes. included in it. I I think it was Ebert. Like it might it might have been someone else. I think it was Ebert placed this movie in the lineage of Pulp Fiction, in the sense that it's like a talky kind of amiable crime comedy that has these like sudden acts of violence interacting. But I don't really, even if the violence is sometimes shocking, you know, 
movies like that, movies like the Richie movies, when I think of movies that are more in that Tarantino lineage, the violence almost always has this very set piecey feel, right? That it is yeah. like the movie has to move out of the way to get it so it can be treated with seriousness. Whereas in this one, people get hit, people get shot, you know, people get shoved to the ground, car crashes happen, and people keep moving. People keep going about their day. It's it's never the centerpiece of the scene in a way that feels very honest in a way, but it's also kind of strange to grapple with. Though I think that the movie starting with this scene kind of keyed me into the sense of like, oh, this is just the world the movie is going to be existing in, a world where people treat other people this horribly and then keep keep going about their day. And so I was yeah. never thrown by it. In fact, I found the violence very striking in this movie. At times, I, too, I think it gets I, a little goofy, but... I think what I think the different what separates this between like the Tarantino esque violence that yeah. Ebert is relating it to is that Tarantino style of violence is so provocative that it's like fetishized. Yes. And this film doesn't do that to the violence. The violence kind of it might not there might not be like an elongated build up to it as we're talking about. It might come out of nowhere. It might be unexpected. It might be shocking, but it's not yeah. done in a way that it's not done in a way that uses the tools of cinema to like romanticize how violence exists in the world. Yeah. And you I love, because I mentioned this, and I think it's a funny joke, but you do see Carrie Condon later in the movie. Uh, you said you saw her spotted her twice. I only spotted her once. Maybe I was zoning out, but there's a bit where two characters are back in that coffee shop and she's serving them coffee and her face is like covered in bruises and bandages and they kind of like grimace at it and yeah. then keep moving. And it's kind of funny to see her walk in the frame, walk out, but that has that sense that like, uh, no, she still has to go to work. I'll, right? I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, what I think is a better moment yeah. where this comes back at the very end of the film when um, Kelly Murphy's friend, uh, David Wilmot's Oscar is sitting in the in the cafe and she comes to take his order and he's very friendly to her asking her oh, about yeah, the day yeah, is yeah, and she blows that. him off immediately not because she's being rude but because she has like a, a deep distrust of yeah. of the men that come into her store of now. course it, this movie this movie takes these things that happen and 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 shows the the long term or maybe not long term but the, it shows that these these acts have effects that last it's so obviously, listeners, if you didn't kind of pick up on this from the the plot synopsis, this <laughs> is one of those, like, I think very in vogue in the mid-2000s. Like, yeah. they called them hyperlink movies. Like, it's that the was generation the of um, the generation of Altman. Yeah, that post. Who start that, that, it's the short, I mean, films. really, it's like the shortcuts analogs. But, you know, there are so many of these movies in the 2000s. And really... Yeah. You can look at Altman. You can look at um, Paul Magnolia. Sanderson. Yeah, really, I think that it's it's Alejandro Gonzalez in the art too. Um, is the person who really kickstarts a lot of these because I think more so than Shortcuts and more so than Magnolia, a lot of these movies in the mid two thousands are so interested in that sort of interlapping interlocking narratives, right, and the way that like incidental elements of one of these stories become major like have echo effects that like impact 
the other narratives as opposed to these things kind of just happening in orbit. Do you get what I'm saying? No, that's right. That strikes me as the Gonzalez and Yara two like evolution of this, which is why the the screenwriter of those movies, who I'm blanking on his name on, he always called them hyperlink movies, right? That like, like, like a hyperlink on Wikipedia, everything impacts everything else. But a this web. is a big one. They well, all exist on a web. They all exist on a web. Yeah. This is a big one of those. Me and you and everyone we know, the Miranda July movie is probably the best of those. Crash is the ultimate like <laughs> fucking monolithic text of these. It's it's just a thing that everyone got into for like a six year period. And I think we got burnt out on it so much that no one wants to make those movies anymore. But I think this is just a great example of how powerful that storytelling style can be. You know what I'm saying? That 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 it just kind of d- demonstrates an honesty to how people actually go about their day in a way that other naturalist cinema can kind of be a little too focused on a narrative in a way. And is this movie overstuffed? Yes. I think this movie is absolutely overstuffed. Um, I think you could lose a couple of these plot threads and I would not be heartbroken. Yeah. I think one in specifically the one of Sam's wife, uh, Nolene is probably the easiest one. Lost, that well, that, and I was thinking that and the David Wilcott stuff. Um, the David oh, yeah. Wilcott stuff to me feels a little tacky, even if there's there again, there's stuff in the David Wilcott stuff that I really like, right? Yeah. There, there, there's elements of that subplot I really like. I don't like the porn jokes though, I don't like the masturbation jokes, I don't like how like almost American pie it gets at its worst. This it's movie, also strange because he's such a he's he's not like a young man, yeah, you know what I mean? like. This it's movie. like it's like a very it's it it gets into like forty year old virgin territory, but without yes. the without the um the just like overwhelming sympathy that Steve Carell yes evokes every time he's on screen, I, regardless of project. I I can't really place why, but there there are two plot lines in this movie that feel very heightened, and it's that and the Colmini cop stuff, which, yeah. Which is so much more of like a rugged, almost intense, almost Richie-esque crime film. And for some reason, the intensity of the Calmini stuff worked for me. The like sex farce, you know, energy of the David Wilcox stuff didn't. And I think it's because the Calmini character is supposed to be an asshole who's choosing to live his life that way. I think it's because the Cole Meany character thinks he's in a movie. Exactly. Like he thinks, he he thinks he's Dirty Harry. He's, he's he, in a movie, he is though. A movie. Yeah. He's being filmed. He's but before, before they even decide to make a, a documentary about him, he thinks he's Dirty Harry. Like, that's how he lives his life, you know? So can I, can I tell you something that, that blew my mind? Yeah, go for it. You will be shocked to hear this. But this movie cleans the fuck up at the Irish Film and Television Awards. I did know that. Yeah. In its year. But here, <laughs> here's what's interesting to me. It wins Best Picture. It wins Best Director. It wins Best Screenplay. It wins one acting award. So just, just to run this down, Colin Farrell is nominated, does not win. Deidre O'Kane, who plays the estranged wife, nominated, does Stand-up not comedian win. Before yeah, Jer Ryan, who plays her friend, nominated, does not win. David Wilcock. No, Jer Ryan, I think, plays oh, she, uh, she's the, Deirdre and um, Sally's mom. Yes, the mother. Yeah. Yes, great. She's great in this movie. Does not yeah. win. David Wilcock, 
wins best supporting actor and is nominated for best newcomer for this movie. And that blew my mind. Cause I'm walking out of this movie. I'm like, well, everyone's really great in this movie, Everybody. except for him. I think it's <laughs> Will Mott. Right? Will Mott. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. Just I do like the capper at the end where he's like the only person who could be nice to Shirley Henderson. I just don't think the movies ever built him there. And it kind of does feel like they want to give Shirley Henderson a happy ending. I think his I I think his storyline is worth it just for when Nolene punches him in the face while sure. they're having sex. That <laughs> makes it like that moment is so funny to me that it makes yes. like the rest of the thing worth it. And I like how honestly it's handled. Um I mean, yeah. I, I I famously like any depiction of sex in movies where sex is like messy and kind of silly. Uh, because sex is messy and kind of silly. Um I like that and then there's a bit where he goes cruising for older women in a bar and he brings Killian Murphy along with him yeah, and Killian yeah. Murphy gets hit on by this older woman <laughs> who's like very frank and honest about being like having sexual agency and desires. I really like that scene with her and Killian Murphy, but he's not a part of that. You could have gotten that in the movie somehow else, right? He gets hit on by a woman who looks like 2023 Candace Bergen. Yes. Is the woman who hits on him in the, yes. in the bar. Yeah. Yes. You excited for book club too? No. Oh, I never saw Move book on. club one. I'm I haven't either. Go. I was like, oh, we're doing the, the Brady movie again. And then they I were and then it said it. book club two. And I went, there's a book club one. Yeah. Probably like knew about this. Yeah, I know. No, no, no. It's one of those things where I'm like, I probably knew about this, but it just left my mind and I don't ever think about it nor have any desire to watch it. But Last week, we were talking about SWAT. One of the things things I said was that for all that Colin Farrell is such a tabloid sensation in this era, you don't see any of that on screen. And and that I said, when I was making my case for not being a movie star, I kind of made the case that like that would bleed into a movie star's performance. The performance Colin Farrell gives in this movie really does feel like he is tapping into his real life bad boy notoriety. Yeah. In a way that is so much more fun to watch. He seems than whatever so the fuck he's doing in SWAT or even his like nasty freak show performance in, in Daredevil, right? Yeah. He seems so self aware in this of the fact that even though he, it's a hard thing to talk about. Because he seems so aware of the fact that, like, he clearly is engaging in some activity, illicit activities, yet people are just in love with him. And, like, because of how he looks, just inherently want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah, he does feel like like someone who does it because he knows he can get away with it. That's what I'm saying. It's like he he in this film, he seems aware of the fact that somebody who looks like him can get away with a lot more than your average person would just because of how his eyes sit on his face and have his eyebrows like wrap around them. And you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a similar energy you get out of the, uh, the Veronica Guerin performance too, where I said that was the Veronica Guerin one is more to me like the Veronica Guerin. I know he's only on screen for like 40 seconds, but he just seems so horny to me yeah. <laughs> and he but doesn't he doesn't have that vibe horny. in this one i don't know if he is he seems disinterested in that in this maybe i don't know he's got that very fuck anything that moves like focus to him even if he's not necessarily hitting on women they're 
there is an aspect of how he is moving that strikes me as very horny. Does he's, that make sense? His yeah. his propulsiveness has a horniness to it. No, he's like a firecracker. Yeah, you know? it's yeah. just so. But you know what I think is the the best part of this performance, and why I think you have to walk away from this movie being like, regardless, he's a great actor, and he's not just reflecting his real life bad boy status on screen, as opposed to weaponizing his real life bad boy status. Never once destabilizes the movie, right? No, yeah. You're never once, and it's the one-two punch, is that he is so much more famous than everyone else in this movie. And he's given such a bigger performance than everyone else in this movie, right? Mm-hmm. And at no point are you ever like Collins blowing them out of the water. And this is what I say. It's because he's listening. The best scene in the movie is when he's at the diner with uh, Killian Murphy, and they're talking about steak sauce, Right. And you're so locked in. It's a real conversation. This psycho has like calmed down as having a real conversation with someone. And that's him as an actor. That's not to disrespect John Crowley. No, for the record, for the record. So Kelly McDonald's Deirdre tells her mother at some point that Killian Murphy and um, David Wilmot stole like a, a wholesale case of brown sauce which is not A1 steak sauce, just to get that out of the way. It's like a different yeah. thing that they have in England and Ireland. Sure. I don't know what it tastes like. I've never had it before. Um, from what I understand, it's like a sugary Worcestershire sauce. And sure. they, they're they trying to use all of it. So they're literally putting it in like every single thing that they eat. Like, I think at one point they even put it at beer. Like they're at a bar and they order beer and they order, yes. the, they ask but them for really the sauce as well. It's that they yeah. keep putting it in their teeth. No, yeah. So they, they're it's putting the in the tea. the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, well, at first, at first, because I don't know what brown sauce is, and these bottles just say brown sauce on them. I thought the... it was, I thought it was like Hershey syrup. Oh, no. See, I, yeah. okay, for a second, I thought it was Hershey syrup. And I was like, okay. And then I realized like, no, that's like some sort of barbecue sauce. Yeah. Or steak sauce. And I almost threw up. I and can't they imagine. keep doing it the whole movie. It's they keep doing it in the way in which every single person who tries it in the movie is like, this is actually delicious. Makes you think that Mark Rowe must do this. Sure. Like- but I will, I will also say <laughs> movies from this era love their quirky gimmicks, right? That is also true. They love cutesy shit like this. It's gross. I have like a <laughs> revulsion to the idea of it. But I'm never annoyed that it's a plot point in the movie, right? Like, and I think we we got to get into this at some point. Credit to John Crowley that he can blend all these tones as a filmmaker so efficiently that even if some of it doesn't land, that this movie can be like a breakup melodrama and a crime thriller and a satire of reality TV and a workplace comedy and have people putting brown sauce in their tea and like, and a sex farce. And mostly you're kind of like, yes, this is an honest depiction of life in Dublin, which is weird, right? Cause this movie isn't actually very realistic. This movie is actually very pointedly s- not an honest depiction and of, exaggerated. not a realistic depiction of what but life is. Yeah. Everything feels so truthful and lived in. And I, again, I am coming back to me and you and everyone we know. I don't know if you have you seen that movie, the Marriage July movie. I haven't actually. Oh, one of the great yeah, movies. Um, Obviously, it is more in a July movie, and it is 
off the chain weird because uh, her movies are strange. Um, and I think of these as like a yin and a yang to each other because Miranda July's whole thing is this like very icy, detached, you know, almost consciously performed style. And this movie is so loose and shaky and riffy and quotidian, but that they both kind of like managed to from opposite ends tap into some like ecstatic honesty that you're watching this and you're like, yes, this feels like realism. This is neo-realist filmmaking is how I've thought about this, even though it's clearly not. I'll have to put it on the homework syllabus before we watch John Hawks get run over by an 18 wheeler. Dude, fucking (laughs) it is my firm and honest belief that the culture has fucked up because we want John Hawks to be like a creepy weirdo in movies. And what John Hawks actually is, I swear to God, Connor, the greatest romantic living man in pictures today. All right, I'll I'll, I'll take your word for it. hundred percent. Watch me and you and everyone we know. And watch Too Late from 2016 and tell me that we are not wasting John Hawks by not giving him like a thousand Douglas Cirque riffs where he can just like bat his eyes and make a woman swoon for him. Oh, he's so good. And yeah. Oh, God, he's so good at my guys. Sounds sounds like a plan. Yeah, no, that's good. There's going to be a lot. I want to just go back to this. This movie was directed by John Crowley. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Let me say something before we move on fully. Because where, where I was going with the brown sauce is yeah. that there's a scene that you were mentioning where it's when Killian, um, the bus driver and Colin are about to yes. go to embark on their attempted uh, hostage robbery um, plan, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And it's it, they're at a cafe at like seven in the morning and um Killian is putting the brown sauce in his tea and they both Colin at first, just absolute disgusted reaction to it. Like this is the most dirtbag thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Then he watches the bus driver try it with the most intense curiosity. Almost any actor has ever shown on screen, just biting at the opportunity being like, even if it's bad, I want to know how bad it is. Now that both of them are going to know, I can't be the only one who doesn't know. When he watches the bus driver say that it's good, you just see the light bulb click off in front of his head that says, I guess this is a new part. I guess this is a new facet of my of this lifestyle that I'm building for myself, um, which just speaks to how strong of an actor he is and capable. Yeah, it's such a funny thing. Yeah, yeah he's. it's interesting because, you know, I love Billy. Right. I think a lot about Billy. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're in such a weird space with Colin in this movie. Cause like I said, he is so much more famous than anyone else in this movie, especially at this moment, you know, by the time this comes out in the States, Colin Meany's been around for a while, you know, Shirley Henderson and Colin McDonald are both in train spotting, obviously Killian's just popped. Cause 28 days, I think comes out a little before this does in the U S Um Colin's so much more famous than any of these people. Crowley in interviews, contemporary interviews, had, like definitely wanted to downplay the idea that this was a Colin Farrell movie because it's not a Colin Farrell movie. It is an honest to God ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. I do not think any one of the central characters has more screen time than anyone else. And that includes Colin Farrell. It's a true blue ensemble. But I think it's very interesting. Colin Farrell is first built in the credits, right? 
Yeah. And there's two different sets of credits. There's like a, you know, what we used to, we, we it does that thing where there's like what would have been an opening credit sequence 20 years earlier is in the end credits. And then the, the actual cast list appears in the scrolling credits. Yeah. The cast list is in appearance order. He's the first person on screen. So he's first built there, but he's also first built in the fancy stylized ending credits block. On the posters, he is fifth build. Shirley Henderson is first, first build. And he is not actually on the posters at all. Did you notice this? I haven't looked at the posters. If you, if you look at the market, but he's all over the trailer. So I have to assume that it's some like weird contractual jujitsu thing that his agents pulled off where he gets to be first build, but they can't actually advertise the movie as him being in it. And probably for the best, right? Yeah. Like you don't want to come into this movie being like, this is a Colin Farrell vehicle. Then you, you just leave you, with every single person hating the movie. Exactly. You almost want to come into yeah. this movie being like Shirley Henderson's top build in this movie. I got to see what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. Because, I, yeah, the ensemble stories. I mean, I'm looking at the DVD right now. Like Shirley Henderson and Kelly McDonald are the above the title billings. Colmini is the biggest person on the poster. And Colin Farrell's not on the cover at all. Colmini was in Star Trek, right? Yes. Yeah. He was a regular he's, cast member of Star Trek. I haven't watched. He's on Deep uh, Space Nine, I think. I think he's in the next generation. Also. Oh, he, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. the carryover. He's, you know, he's one of those guys. He was working a lot in the in the 90s. You know, I what think, can I say? Yeah, I do think uh, if you're just, if you're putting aside Pierce Brosnan, He's probably the most well-known Irish actor. Colin Farrell. No, no, I mean in the nineties. Oh yeah, probably, yeah. probably, probably. Because he's uh, in the little, commitments. Uh, he's in the Barrytown trilogy. Little which... man named Liam Neeson, my good. Oh friend. yeah, never mind. Okay, Neeson, Neeson's out in these streets. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about this, I think the more we start diving in, that's that's very clearly not true. Um, but he's, <laughs> he is he is well known because well, it, let me also put it this way. I think. The Irish films of the 90s, of which there aren't that many that have any kind of mainstay in the U.S., any kind of following whatsoever, like the commitments and the other um, Barrytown trilogy films. He is and he's principal yeah. cast member. Uh, also, those. Yeah. can cannot be understated. Like the commitments kind of was a, a big fucking deal. It was. Yeah. 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 Uh, 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 I kind of hate the commitments because it kind of ruined British cinema. You know what I'm saying? Because like there's 20 years, the the past 30 years of like mainline British cinema is the English trying to remake the commitments. <laughs> that is you true. know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Full Monty is just a commitments remake. Billy Elliot is just a commitments remake. Any like these like nice light comedy about hard scrabble working class Brits doing something goofy is just a commitments remake. Uh, but the difference then, is the commitments fucking rules. I know. I'm like, even then you have to love it just because for such a simple film, it's. <laughs> I don't love it when they say the Irish are the Great. blacks of Europe. Yeah, that's a little. Uh, it's a loaded statement there. You could, you know, yeah. you don't and have also, to hold on to that when you're done watching the commitments. <laughs> uh, you could just listen to him sing, uh, you know. It also um, broke Glenn Hansard, and I don't like the movie once. 
yes i i also kind of share that feeling that i'm i'm not a big fan of once despite there being like troves of people who claim that that's their favorite movie ever have ever given you my hot john john carney take no the the good john carney movie is begin again and i think yes i like sing street i think the reason here's why i think the reason the good john carney movie is begin again is because begin again is the one with the worst songs and that's the one where he can't rest on the songs whereas sing street and once i think are just vehicles for those soundtracks and there's no movie there uh begin again on the other hand is like a really fucking good movie with shit music I I, uh, I would say you should maybe rewatch Sing Street. I think there's yeah. a lot to Sing Street. I think there's a lot to Sing, to Sing Street about besides the Jack Rayner performance. Is there anything to Sing Street besides the Jack Rayner performance? I don't think so. But the Jack Rayner performance is so the good. Jack Rayner performance is really <laughs> fucking good. But the no, Jack Rayner so performance good. is so good. It's so good. I was a fucking jet engine. Are you kidding me? It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Love Jack Rayner. Um, well, we will do two episodes on Begin Again on this podcast at least. Uh, CeeLo Green? We're going to do CeeLo Green? Yeah, we're going to do CeeLo Green. Green. We're going to do CeeLo Green. We're going to do Haley Stifle. No, Ruff, Ruffalo and, and Kira are Catherine like... Catherine Keener. Ooh. Uh, might be contentious. You know, there's an actress I don't particularly like. You don't like Catherine Keener? Not really. I think um, she gets used very incorrectly, like that's almost all the time. This movie was directed by John Crowley, which I did not know until I Googled this movie a week ago on Mike on the SWAT episode. And then I got really excited. And then last night we had a conversation and I'm a little annoyed that we had the conversation we had, Connor, because I kind of wish we could have had this conversation on Mike. Well, we could recap it. Yeah, but but you told me you were coming into this episode with a very particular energy. Um. And unbeknownst to you, I had not said anything, but I was also coming into that episode with the exact same energy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I couldn't allow another rehappening of uh, the town issue. So <laughs> it is fucking offensive that you mentioned the town in the context. No, no, no. But for real, of it's, the it's 2015 John Crowley masterpiece, Brooklyn. Yes. OK, I, I watched Brooklyn when it came out. In 2015, I loved it then. I had not known much about my Irish ancestry at that point in time. I had not read much about Ireland. I I really just had no knowledge whatsoever other than the fact that we like to wear green and eat potatoes. Um, (laughs) I found a very moving film, but I had not seen it since it came out. I rewatched it last night with everything that I have studied in tow and just like tears dripping down my face at moments throughout that film. And I texted Cole and I said, Cole, I gotta be honest with you. If you don't like Brooklyn, I might leave the zoom call (laughs) the second you say you don't like it. Cause I was like, I just cannot deal with that. I just cannot deal with that kind of negativity in my life at this moment. (laughs) 2015 is one of the best years for movies in recent memory. It is, yeah. And Brooklyn is one of the probably five best movies from 2015. Uh, it's fucking next level moving. Everything you know about me, you thought that I didn't like Brooklyn. <laughs> you're just like, sometimes you're a wild card and I really, <sighs> you know. It's 
I mean, it is a, it is a, I, I, in our conversation last night, I compared it to the works of Frank Borzaghi. And I think that's right. It is just such an unassuming, earnest, gorgeously crafted, like love story. Uh, and everyone who doesn't like it is wrong. And every time someone wants to say that the Donald Gleason stuff doesn't work, they're dumb and they're stupid. The whole point of the third act of that movie is that it sucks when she goes back to Ireland. And you're never actually supposed to think there's a real love triangle between Emery Cohen and Donald Gleason. It's that society wants her to be with Donald Gleason, but he sucks. Yeah. That's why it's so good. Maybe it's not quite top five of 2015, but it's number six. If it's not in the top five, it's number six. I think what I find so moving is that it really is the story of not just Irish immigrants, but like most immigrants who came to America during that time, oh, which is yeah. it's hard to leave. It is hard to leave your home and it is hard to leave your family left behind. But America existed as a place where you could build a new home and you could be a part of something. You could be a part of forming the, the society yeah. that you want to live in. And um great uh, her her decision was which as you allude to is was never really like a decision that she was tasked to make in the first place at the end of the film to go back to america i think is very encapsulating of the irish experience at that moment in history where there was such little opportunity on the island that they all came from that they had to leave elsewhere they had to make they had to remake what they liked about Ireland, along with all these other cultures that are coming together in, in new new societies across the world. And I, I just I, I, I I'm very affected by it. It's, it's, um, it's a very affecting movie. Yeah, uh, it's a great piece of Irish Italian solidarity. Is, uh, yes. <laughs> so, but, and maybe maybe even more than Scorsese's work might be. Yeah. John Crowley. <laughs> Made this, made Brooklyn 2015, total masterpiece. His follow-up to Brooklyn was The Goldfinch. I have not seen it. Have you seen it? Calamity. Disaster. I know it did terribly, but have you seen the movie? Borderline unwatchable. Okay. Have you seen seen the movie? Oh, I've seen it. It's horrendous. Like, I don't know what happened there. But beyond those two movies, and like, I like Brooklyn enough that like, Sight unseen. I'm still excited for his next movie, uh, which I think is filming right now or just wrapped filming and is a romance starring Florence Pugh and Andrew Garfield. So sign me the fuck up. Oh, he's directing that. He's directing that thing. I didn't know that was him. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. That's going to be good. He's worked with Garfield before. Yeah, because he did, he did Boy A. That yeah. was my thing. Is I also knew that he had done Boy A, uh, which was Garfield's big break that people like. And he did Close Circuit, which was the Eric Bonner, Rebecca Hall terrorism thriller. I haven't seen that, that one. That I haven't seen. Probably good. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know he made this. For some reason, I thought, hold on, I'm going to look up this guy's name. And maybe it's just that I was getting my wires crossed with, Shirley Henderson and Kelly McDonald being in this movie. For some reason, I thought that John Hodge had directed this movie, the screenwriter of Trainspotting. Um, I mean, not. I don't but... know how I got my wire scratch on that. But like I said, I I, I, I didn't know this was tr- Crowley until I Googled it. And then I got really excited. Insane first movie. 
Yeah. Especially given the type of filmmaker he's going to become aesthetically. This looks nothing like Brooklyn. This feels nothing like Brooklyn beyond a sense of like willingness to stake out a style and like plant your flag in the ground and say, this is what this movie is going to be like. This thing is so loose and sloppy where, where his later movies and the goldfinch too, even though it's a disaster are so elegant and restrained and classical. Boy, um, is like that as well. Like this or like the, the later ones, like the later ones. Yeah. yeah. It's just so interesting that his, again, a career that doesn't, ever really take off like it probably should right have like you this... seen Boye cool no i haven't it, so let me i'll tell you what it's about yeah. um the kid in this film who loves throwing like boulders through people's windshields I, I, the, if that, that kid, kid is if that kid has a best friend if that but me i'm like that's, that, guy, that kid's got connor energy oh my god <laughs> i don't know how to feel about that but um imagine if shit imagine around. if that kid had a best friend yeah. and that and that that best friend grew up and that's what boy is about okay yeah yeah sounds good there's a lot more I'm sure to it's it really i don't want to spoil it for you um unless you want me to no, um, no i'll i'll, I'll yeah. watch it i like crowley enough i'm just like but just looking at his filmography and reading reviews of this movie and this this sense of like, well, this guy was a is a big talent. His his film career has not really borne that out. Now no. he's a big theater director. Yes. And that might be what what it is, is that at the end of the day, he'd just rather work in the theater than work in film. Um, Which is inherently a much more Irish uh, yes. fascination. He, Ireland has a long history in the theater. And, a long and history Crowley in, in particular has a big relationship with Martin McDonough, yeah. who is going to come up in this podcast a lot. But mm. a lot of McDonough's like well-known productions of McDonough plays are directed by Crowley, both in the UK and Ireland and in, in America. Uh, Crowley's done McDonough on Broadway. He did a behanding in Spokane, which I know nobody liked. Um, but maybe it's just that, but you, you watch this movie and you're like, more should have come out of this movie. This movie shouldn't just be like a footnote in everyone's career. And the biggest thing for that is like, why does Crowley not get better offers? And then Kid A also is a big one. He doesn't get the shine off that. He doesn't get the shine off any of these things, but then I think he gets the blame for the goldfish and that annoys me. And the goldfinch yeah. is fucking awful. Like, I really need to stress I'm not defending it. But you, man, I People hope, I love hope that book, is... though, right? If I understand correctly. Yeah, I mean, I think that was part of it was people are like, he tried and he, he couldn't pull it off. Yeah. Um, that movie is a calamity, though. I, yeah, I never watched it because uh, I just heard it was bad and I didn't want to give it a try. Another um, movie we could potentially do multiple episodes on on this podcast if we go for long enough nicole kidman's in it right kidman and jeff wright oh jeffrey wright's in yeah they've (laughs) given the only two good performances truly i think the closest jeffrey wright has come to an oscar nomination since 1996 is like the six months before anyone saw the goldfinch uh because people had read that book and knew how central that character was the book and they were like, this could be a slam dunk Jeffrey Wright Oscar. But then 
the goldfinch is to me like a textbook example of a this had oscar buzz movie where the second anyone yeah. sees it the second anyone sees it it's done right i feel like the goldfinch and dear evan hansen are like the same story <laughs> yeah it's like they had yeah. they there was this like big news when they got greenlit big news when it went into production everybody knew it was coming everybody thought it was going to be in the discussion they premiere at the festivals that they premiere at it just immediately the sentiment is don't see this movie <laughs> don't even interact with this movie we don't want to talk about it type of deal yeah. um unless we're talking about how bad it is which is part but of even the- then it has it has it has had no legs right no. Like no one even cares about the Goldfinch anymore, except for Donna Tart. Quick sidebar: Does Jeffrey Wright not have the weirdest filmography ever? It's the strangest filmography of all time, and we should maybe talk off mic yeah. about it. Is what I'm gonna say. Um, just, just the weirdest one line. of my favorite actors. Same here. Truly, yeah. truly, uh, no one has ever been bigger ever. Uh, someone we're going to talk about in this podcast, actually. I forgot. I forgot. Uh, but again, I forget that he's in the Batman because sometimes he can just vanish oh, into yeah. a movie. Yeah. I he gives my Batman, favorite performance in the Batman. I'm it's going to be go really interesting to look at the Batman like yeah. two years removed from the Batman. Yeah. Because I don't even really remember a lot from that movie, despite it being such a big deal. When it came out last year, yeah, I've seen it twice and I don't remember a whole lot from it. And it got everybody loved it when it came out. Everybody yeah. was talking about it. Some people are like, "Okay, this movie's okay." Some extremely smart people are like, "This movie's fine. Calm down." Yeah, no, but I mean, like, <laughs> just the fact that like you go on social media and just every post is about the Batman for like a full month, just yeah. every single one. Yeah. The, the I think like three month terror campaign. That was being waged on Twitter by 19-year-old film Twitter personalities trying to convince me that Matt Reeves is like a serious director who should be taken seriously in the same way that people were talking about Nolan after Begins was like a very annoying period on Twitter. Yeah, very different situations there. Matt Um, Reeves is barely a director. Have you seen... To just move on, have you seen Normal People, the television series that Marco I have wrote? not? I famously wrote? don't watch television. Same here. I think that's the issue. If if you and I share like a huge blind spot to our watching habits, it's that. Um, but I hear it's really good, and I hear the book is good. And uh, sure, I don't yeah. like Daisy Edgar Jones. Uh, I think she's fake, and I don't buy it. And I wish they'd stop trying to convince me that she can headline a movie. Um, yeah. And I'm sorry to be mean, but at some point you have to start calling the like doe-eyed British brunettes. There's too many of them. They keep trying to shove more ones down my throat, and we have plenty of them. And I'm just gonna say no, thank you, Daisy Edgar Jones. Uh, we have a Florence Pugh already. <laughs> um, I'll take your word for it. I've only seen her in in the first episode of Normal People, which yeah. I watched, and. Uh, the show, the Andrew Garfield show about the Mormons killing people in the oh yeah under the light of heaven under the banner of uh, heaven. Under the banner of heaven. Um, I will also say that like I I so don't watch TV uh, that I was like resistant to the idea of Paul Mescal just naturally, and then I saw the Lost Daughter and I was like, wait, you're wasting this guy on a Hulu show? What the fuck are you people doing? 
Paul Meskel, I'm very sorry uh, for your loss. Phoebe Bridgers can go fuck herself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How do you leave Paul Meskel for Bo Burnham? Like, it's not just that she left Paul Meskel, right? She left him for Bo Burnham. And conversely, people are getting mad at me for saying this. How do you leave Lorene Scafaria for Phoebe Bridgers, right? And I was the first person in the Midwest to listen to Phoebe Bridgers, okay? So I'm allowed to say this shit. Bad move on both their behalves. You know, man, the heart wants what it wants. Oh. <laughs> if the heart wants Bo Burnham, you should get a transplant. Uh, where to go? Where to go? Um, this movie looks... okay. Here's what I'm going to say about this movie, Intermission. I really like how it looks, right? This super loose handheld style with a lot of like tiny snap zooms all over the place, which is kind of disorienting for a moment. But you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do feel like I am inherently a little allergic to it just because of all the mumblecore films that adopt the same design. This movie is doing something different from the Mumblecore films. It is. Mumble- it is. I'm but just saying that every Mumblecore film does that snap zoom. No, Swanberg does the snap zooms. Yes, Swanberg yes. does the snap zooms. The, the Duplasses do it a little because they're kind of hacky. Um, the Duplasses do it a lot. Yeah, because they're kind of the hacky. The Duplasses do it a lot. But Bujowski doesn't do it. Shelton didn't do it. You know, it's really a Swanberg thing. And this maybe, maybe my, the reason I'm like, ooh, when this movie starts is because it does kind of look like a Swanberg movie at like 50%. An early Swanberg movie. Late Swanberg's a whole different beast. I could talk for hours about Joe Swanberg aesthetics. Um, <laughs> here's what I will say is an issue, I think, with the visual style of this movie. And an issue that is the one thing in this movie that screams first-time director to me. Not enough contrast with when you actually go into the reality TV stuff. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that the movie itself looks like a segment of reality TV on the same network that the reality TV segment within the movie is. Exactly. And I don't think that's pointed enough because they have to crank up, make everything shakier, make the zooms more intense when you're actually seeing the stuff that's shot in, in universe. And so it, 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 it is neither a strong enough to contrast nor a strong enough idea. It just strikes me as someone playing around. And that can be good. I like it. If the reality TV stuff wasn't in this movie, I'd like it more. Do you get I, what I'm saying? I appreciate the fact that the running joke is that the uh, TV producer character is like terrible at his job. Yes. Um, but I do get what you're saying. That the aesthetics of the film itself match that aesthetic too closely yeah. that there's not, there's no dissonance between them. Cause there's something so pointed about, again, the, the, the way those early Swanberg movies look right. That yeah. you, you can find it allergic, but the, the potency of it is that it really does create this almost like, intense association between you the spectator and the actual sense of the camera that puts i think the sense of you being in the space in a way that and i'm gonna i'm going to credit mark tilly for this idea because this is last week's guest mark tilly's idea that kind of functions a similar sense of identification as found footage films vis-a-vis our hyper awareness of the camera in swanberg movies do you get what i'm saying yeah this um 
Here this movie, I think, has a similar effect to it. But then once you actually do break out the textual camera, then then I start getting a little lost in the sauce. You know what I'm saying? I do. I think maybe what I don't like as much about it is that it where will you take where you take like some independent filmmaking feels like the upper echelon of jazz, like in the way it's improvisational. Sure. And like the movement with the camera around the space feels like it's an actor itself within the space, it's which I, I think is what's leading just Swanberg. Yeah, yes. which I think is which, which I think it's not Swanberg. There's a lot of other mobilecore filmmakers that use it. Swanberg's probably the best of yeah. that aesthetic, which is what I mean. Every aesthetic, even ones that are used incorrectly, there's a reason why they're used in the yes. first place. It's because yeah, somebody is using it correctly, and somebody is popularizing it for a reason. I think what you're talking about how it like it lends to that kind of found footage feeling is because you experience the camera as its own actor within the space that the scene yes. takes place in. Yes. Um, because you're identifying like its movement with that kind of documentary aesthetic where you're aware the entire time that somebody is holding the camera and that there's but like a physical presence within the space. Yes. But I think further than that, when done, best you do kind of get that Mulvian sense of like the gaze is collapsing you know what i'm saying like she talks yeah. about a visual pleasure but not in a way that's like predatory but in a way that can be very inviting and i do think this movie is the a good example of that that like you do feel like you're sitting at those tables sometimes this is why people like the office by the way i think because it's very well the office is diegetically no no, no but but dude, this is my point no 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 yeah. no no, no, no. They can tell me The Office is diegetically filmed, right? But that doesn't actually make sense if you think about shot compositions in The Office, right? The second you start thinking about the sense of The Office is supposed to be a documentary, the entire reality of the text breaks down. That that is an American office, never seen British office. An American office, that conceit is an excuse for the aesthetic. The aesthetic is an excuse to really create this sense of like, you are there with Jim and Pam. The you British are sitting office in another desk. shares the same aesthetic as the American. Yeah, but I'm, yeah. I'm saying the British office might actually give a shit about the documentary conceit. The American office doesn't. The American I office wants both, the The American aesthetic. office, I, I I really enjoy the American office. I've rewatched it yeah. multiple, multiple times. I the, the early seasons, I think, are very conscious of the fact that they're trying to replicate shots that would actually The first happen. season is. They... They break, they, they, it's the same. They, they like adopt the same rules in terms of cinematography and in terms of art design as, um, uh, Walter Murch does in, in a blink of the eye where it's like, there's a hierarchy of yes. sometimes, sometimes you prioritize the art over yes. the, the realism of what's taking place over the, um, God, what is he talking about? Like over the, uh, connectivity like yeah. from shot to shot i i think they do the same thing I, I what i'm getting at is that um and i think this film does there's crowley speaks in interviews or the, like the interview that i found with him um about the reasons why he and the cinematographer uh richard lenchewski he's a polish yes. cinematographer i probably butchered that his name thank you for taking Um, that bullet (laughs) um they speak as to why they like adopted this kind of um uh method 
towards the cinematography. Uh, and I think it works in this film. When I'm saying when it doesn't work for me, I think is when it is... When it's in a movie directed by Adam McKay? No, yes, but I think... Okay, so when it, when it doesn't work in the McKay movies, I think it's because it's substituting actual intimacy in the performances with intimacy in the camera. Yes. You get what I'm saying? Like, because <laughs> it's a very... It's a very it's a very effective type of filmmaking yes. and it can, it can be used manipulatively if the other aspects of the filmmaking don't reflect that kind of method. You, you know what I mean? Dude, so to, there are to go times, back, Yeah. Just to go back to my boy, Joe, uh, the reason it works in the Swanbergs is because those movies are so like open wound, raw, honest anyway. Swanberg's entire filmmaking method from what i understand is built towards uncovering those like honest moments exactly i think like derek key in france does something very similar like his entire his entire thing the the thing that he is the most fascinated with and the most obsessed with is is deconstructing all the artifice and and finding whatever honesty like can exist in these melodramatic teleplays that they're putting on the screen i think when you're taking like a quote-unquote satirical filmmaker like mckay and you just have like christian bale and prosthetics Mm -hmm. and it's bullshit the honesty the honesty of the moment that you're trying to to manifest to materialize isn't actually there and you're substituting it with intimacy with the camera and intimacy with the editing then it just feels false to me and it feels very pointed and I start to dislike it and I start to get angry that they're using this kind of the camera yeah. this way. It does everything that, that like, if, if, if this kind of uh, filmmaking begins with dogma in a sense, uh, especially like the digital, like uh, maybe not begins. This, Cause this is shot on super 16 though. I think yeah. you can stretch. I mean, I think well, do, when dogma this, starts, they're not, this it's true. not digital. I, yeah. I think you can stretch this all the way back to, uh, well, you could definitely Shirley Clark and John Cassavetes. Yeah, you could definitely stretch it back to them. I, there are some cases where you could stretch it back even further, probably yeah. to like the Soviets and sure. certain uh, places. Um, the French, I mean, definitely. Sure, Renoir. Yeah, did whatever. Everything exists on a continuum. But what, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, cool. what I'm saying is, that the whole idea of dogma yeah. is what I'm saying that Swanberg likes to do although dogma is you know a more yeah. intense more obsessive of a filmmaking yes apparatus and then you have filmmakers who are just like i don't really know what we're trying to i don't really know what we're attempting to achieve here so let's just let the camera like run wild and i want the yeah. cinematographer moving around the space because it's more dynamic then it just feels false Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, I I get what you're saying. I think Crowley does have an understanding of what he wants to do. I just think he makes some missteps in there vis-a-vis the connections I think he's trying to yeah. draw to reality TV. I just don't think it clicks. But, you know, he's but a first-time like filmmaker. Else. Yeah. What? He's a first-time filmmaker. He's a first-time like, he's filmmaker. Trying this stuff is out. such a competently yeah. well-made first-time filmmaker. Also, sidebar, I would just like to say, uh, Mr. Joe Spahnberg, sir, if you're listening, please make another movie. <laughs> but you know, you know why it works? Like it works here and it works in Swanberg films, but then in McKay films, it feels lazy. Yeah. It feels I mean, like I'm not the scenes say, aren't. Well let's not out. just, let's not solely 
apply this to McKay. It's everyone who wants to do the Barry Aykroyd thing after the Hurt Locker <laughs> comes out. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like so many people wanted to tap in to that look, including Catherine Bigelow and Barry Aykroyd sometimes. Um, and it so rarely works. Man, Barry Aykroyd shot the Whitney Houston biopic. Uh, is that movie insane? Do I need to see that movie? <laughs> I haven't. I don't know anything about that movie. I don't know if anybody likes that movie. I don't know if anybody dis- dislikes that movie. Nobody saw it. Yeah. It, it, it hit Netflix like yesterday. So I'm sure we're finally going to get some discourse on it. Cole hit the music. Whitney Houston, New Jersey Wall of Fame. Let's uh, DQ. No. DQ. <laughs> Nothing to do with this movie. Nothing to do with this movie. When we do the Forrest Whitaker miniseries, you're begging me to do. Oh we cover God. Waiting to Exhale. Yeah. There's got to be a way to get Whitney in here somehow. You know what? You know what? Costner. You know what it is? It's Whitney Costner. It's Whitney Costner. It's um, what's your favorite performance in this movie? Mm, I think Shirley Henderson. Maybe? I am in complete agreement with yeah. you. <laughs> Shirley Henderson is again. I think everyone's very good in this movie. Uh, I think Shirley Henderson kind of like breaks my heart. Yeah, in this movie, where where do you fall on Shirley? I for a long time I thought of her as Moaning Myrtle. Yes, of just I think most people do. First interaction with her. Um, I do not understand her character in Train Spotting. Like, I just do not. I don't. I don't understand why she's with Spud in either of them. Like, I don't. I just don't get the connection there. Like, I. I can't comprehend yeah. what's happening between them. Um, when she's in like Bridget Jones, I'm Wait. just constantly like. I wish I, I wish she had her own yes. storyline like segment going on and she's not awarded that. Uh, trying to look at the other things that she's been you, in. You haven't named um, her best performance yet. So let me, let me just say this. What do you think it is? What do you think? I, I think she's wonderful in um, the first train spotting. I think that's an incredibly funny performance that like. It is, but I don't that get. Movie so, I don't understand what she's doing. She's with Spud because she's like him. fucking 20. Dude, that's why she's with Spud because Spud's funny. Because people just like do dumb things when they're yeah. Because people just yeah. do fucking dumb things. She's the counterbalance to, to Kelly McDonald, who's like the more sadistic one. She's just there. Yeah. I will say this: I I watched Train Spotting two last night, uh, just coincidentally. Well, not coincidentally because Blake Jack, but um, she and Kelly McDonald probably have the same amount of screen time in that movie, which is very little. Yeah, uh, Kelly McDonald has one scene, and then Shirley Henderson is kind of sprinkled throughout the movie. Uh, but Kelly McDonald is like incredible in Trainspotting too, and Shirley Henderson is like given nothing to do in Trainspotting too. Um, Shirley she, Henderson, I saw Trainspotting too when it came out, and a, a movie I love. She so it's implied that Spud writes Train Spotting and she yes. thinks of the name Train Spotting, right? Yes. And that's, that's all basically and, all she and they does. and they have a kid, and that's all they have I a kid. Remember of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh Shirley Henderson's best performance is in a little motion picture entitled Star Wars Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. Oh. Uh, in which she plays Babu Frick, the one good part of that yeah. horrible movie. <laughs> okay. But, but that is here's true. here's Babu why Frick like, is amazing. Here's why I like Shirley Henderson. I don't know if you know this, Connor. Shirley Henderson did the voice for Babu Frick. I Shirley did not know Henderson that. did the voice 
live on set for Babu Frick <laughs> in order to properly give that performance. I swear to God, this is true because she's improvising a lot of that stuff in order to properly give that performance. She felt that she had to also puppeteer Babu Frick. Oh, so, so she's her, puppeteering. Babu she Frick. is puppeteering and improving Babu Frick's dialogue in the one good scene in that movie. And oh that's God. how good Shirley Henderson is. She's also incredible in see how they run a movie. No one saw from last year where she plays Agatha Christie. Uh, oh, the Saoirse Ronan and the Saoirse Ronan movie. And that, yeah. She's just a great character actress. It's always good when she pops up in something. She's got such an interesting face. She's she really such an interesting voice. Incredible yeah. voice. I mean, I think that's why they wanted her to play Babu Frick, is because she's got such a weird voice. Although, doesn't it, isn't Bill Hader the voice of BB 8 or something like that? No, Ben Schwartz ben is, Schwartz. I believe, yeah. the voice of BB 8 in those movies. Um, She's really lovely in this movie. She, I feel like if anyone is the main character of this, she and Killian are the main characters of this movie. Um, um, I would say Killian is definitely like the through line yeah. of the film. Like if you're relating it to Train Spotting, Killian is the uh, Ewan McGregor of this. Sure. Um, no, but Ben Schwartz and Bill Hader. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not know that. Um, um, but yeah, I would say Killian is is the most consistent protagonist. Um, then probably, then probably, because I, I think those yeah. two through lines are happening simultaneously, and everyone's functionally either interacting with one or the two of them yeah. as like and maybe calm. Yeah, a little. Yeah. Um, but if the Killian stuff is kind of very dynamic and funny and acerbic, her. Her stuff is so tender and, 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 and heartbreaking in a way. And it's there are two moments in this film that break my heart. What are they? The first one that occurs like early in the film is when Killian gets home from work and he sits down on the couch and he slowly pulls Deirdre's bra out of the ugh, couch ugh, cushion. Ugh. Just horrifying. Just, like shatters me. Upsetting. And then the second is after. Shirley sees herself on the news and after yes, the crying yes, moment when yes. she's talking to her mom and she's like I don't know why I didn't realize I had a mustache like I knew I had one but I just uh, pretended that I didn't know that I had one and and her mom is telling her like maybe it was just courageous that you like it's so... were willing to allow yourself to look that way and it's just heartbreaking both of them are heartbreaking <laughs> i saw someone someone said this in a review that it's like a smart take on the ugly girl gets a makeover thing that you've seen in so many movies yeah but there, there there's something so brave i think both from a filmmaking perspective and from a performing perspective of introing this character right having them having them pop up early on she has a mustache in this movie it's not that apparent wait let me recap because i didn't really get a chance to actually like recap so shirley henderson sally who's deirdre's sister she her backstory which they don't show but it gets explained in exposition from other characters is that she was living in london i believe with a boyfriend and the boyfriend took all her money tied her to the bed like took a shit on her while she was tied to the bed and told her like how awful she was. And then she was left there for like two or three days tied to the bed before somebody found her. I think it's implied that her mom found her and then brought her back to Dublin. 
Um, this does this does take place in Dublin. Right? It takes place in Dublin. This yeah. takes place. They never in Dublin. say specifically. Um, so she comes back to the to to Ireland, and she just plays this very sheepish woman who always has her hood over her face, um, like the most the epitome of introvert. Yes. You know what I mean? And she has a very subtle mustache because yes. she is not grooming herself anymore. Sure. And that's kind of the quirky affect of her story arc is that she has this very subtle mustache. Everybody can see it. Everybody talks about it, but she kind of like refuses to acknowledge that it's there until later in the film. You, you think the movie's teeing it up for this very like body positive, like, who cares? You know, some women yeah. have mustaches because some women do have mustaches. Like, true, and, and truly, that's my thing. I say, I'm like, okay, whatever. But you think the movie's teeing it up for that that kind of like you know body positive message? And I guess that is kind of the way it ends up landing at the end of the movie. But there's something so like I think brave uh, for both the film perspective and a performance perspective. Like I was saying, that the, the the centerpiece of this narrative is that she sees herself on TV and she is like horrified at how strong the mustache is coming across on TV. And she like breaks down in tears and has like a complete meltdown over it. And especially that that is like the follow-up to a scene where basically the film that the TV producers are trying to give her less screen time yeah, and building their shots around trying to hide the mustache as all as possible. It would be very easy for the movie. Just be like, those guys are assholes. Those guys are being rude. The fact that the movie can be like, even if, especially that it's going to end on the note of ultimately no one cares the mustache, that it still affects her and hurts her. That, that issues a level of like emotional complexity to this movie that I think an American movie would just be like a little more rah-rah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah and I get, and it's not, it's not that, um, uh, what's his character? I'm really struggling with their names. It's just not sticking in my head. Oscar, David Wilmot's character. It's not that at the end of the movie, he, he like acts like she doesn't have a mustache. She, she tells him that she's getting it waxed because she's come to that decision and he's like well you have a bit of hair there but it's not yeah, like he's like i don't care he's like, or anything sure like that. yeah he's very casual which i it. think is the most accurate like it it makes sense why they kind of fall for each other because it's like the most accurate like it would be more off-putting for somebody to pretend that it didn't exist than just to be like yeah, it's there. And like, I would prefer if you took, yeah, I would prefer if you like waxed it or bleached it, but like, I still think you're pretty and it's not a big deal. And it doesn't like ruin you as a human being in my eyes and all, all of these. She just wants someone issues of self-worth yeah. that exist within people. She ultimately just is like looking for someone to be nice to her and everyone's tiptoeing around her yeah. in an attempt to be nice to her. And I, I found that very, I, I found that whole plotline very affecting. And I think a lot of it is on, on her as a performer and and again it's it's what they get from casting her in the harry potter movies her like weird ability to take up space and not take up space at the same time (laughs) did you understand what i'm saying this is the thing i think about shirley henderson throughout her career is she's such a small woman and she plays often these very like withdrawn shrunken in characters that she like can kind of disappear into the frame but also she like 
suck. She's the only thing you can look at when she's on screen. And it's, I, I don't have the language for it. She's such an interesting actress. I like in Harry Potter that she's like a 30 year old playing a 40 year old ghost in the yeah. body of a 13 year old. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it makes perfect sense when you think about it that way. Cause she, she kind of does seem like a 30 year old woman in the body of a 16 year old. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, she's, she's, so tiny. she's almost 40 when she shoots this movie. Yeah. She's older than you think she is. I think too, just cause she's so small. Uh, yeah. I, I, the, uh, yeah. the weird, uh, she's small, but she also looks, she also like, her She's skin is face. very her skin is very taut. Yes. She looks very youthful. She doesn't yeah. uh-huh. have wear and tear. <laughs> I don't know how else to say the, it. <laughs> yeah. the weird Shirley Henderson quadrilogy. Shirley Henderson Kelly McDonald quadrilogy, which is uh the two turn spottings this movie, and then Shirley Henderson basically has yeah. a cameo. I don't think they're in the same Harry Potter movie. I was going to say Shirley Henderson basically has a cameo in Anna Karenina. Oh, which yeah. Kelly McDonald is wonderful in Anna Karenina. My other big complaint about this movie. Why aren't you giving Kelly McDonald more to do? I know. I Another also don't actress buy, I adore. I also don't buy her, her like turn towards. Yes. I don't buy it to be with Killian at the end of the movie. But I guess my big takeaway was looking at this movie, seeing that they're the first two people build on the poster aware because I can't not be that this is a train spotting reunion and billing those two women first on the poster is implicitly a reminder of train spotting. Right. As a Which again, as you said, in 1998 was uh, according to BFI, the tenth best British film ever. Drake's Bunny is huge. Yeah, it's huge in the states too. It's huge. I don't understand why this movie isn't more about those two sisters. I would assume that that would be the anchor, but it's almost a weird coincidence that they're well, sisters. It's a coincidence, but also feels like pointed casting because again, they're both Scottish. They're not yes. Irish. They're yes. the only non-Irish people in this yes. film. Um, it really feels like they went like go get the girls from train spotting cast them in this movie yeah. uh, which if you're gonna do that like you can't really end up with better casting than kelly mcdonald and shirley henderson so like it works out but it does kind of feel like it, it was some kind of like weird ploy to get like train spotting legitimacy attached to this film you know what i mean a hundred percent but at the same time that I, I i i want i want more of that like i i don't mind that yeah. fucking carny marketing shit right yeah. I, I just want to see it pay off that i i, I want to see that relationship be grounded more where instead what i'm getting is basically everything in this movie is so good and so exciting and then the kelly mcdonald stuff which really needs to be like in a lot of ways the anchor kind of just lands flat because she's given so little to do but they also, also share two they share only two scenes together yeah it's weird scenes. yeah it's so weird and kelly mcdonald's obviously like another person where i'm like i oh, mean i could watch her do anything and it's rare that i'm like i want more from her because she's such a good one scene wonder you know what i'm saying she gives the best performance in no country for all men <laughs> Yeah, I damn right she does. You are <laughs> goddamn right she does. She gives the best performance in No Country for All Men. Well, we are simpatico with our. The only the the only way that movie works is with Kelly McDonald. Yes, she completely yeah. anchors that thing. That's one of the one of my favorite performances anyone's ever given. 
And I know um, you haven't seen this, but she is in what I think is considered like universally considered the best episode of Black Mirror, which is essentially sure. which is essentially like I'm, a, a 90 minute long neo-noir sure. like Blade Runner. Uh, I'm uh, only going to disagree episode. with you because I think the widely considered best episode of Black Mirror is San Junipero. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think San, San Junipero and the Christmas special are the, the ones that I, as the non-Black Mirror person, know people like. Um, yeah. I mean, San Junipero, into- obvious reasons, if you know what that episode yes. is about. Yeah. The Christmas special is off-putting in a way that I think is like the hallmark of Black Mirror. Like yeah. the Christmas special is what people are going to Black Mirror to find, to like interact with. But Kelly McDonald's episode, I think, takes the te- like the 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 tenets of Black Mirror to its like fullest extent, in the sense that it's like reality shattering and, and horrifying, and it's but it feels real. Like her hers feels the most based of all the Black Mirror episodes and the reality that we are currently living in today, and like the trajectory that we're heading towards, which I think makes it the okay. Most- I'm gonna watch it. Um. Have you ever seen Choke? No. The the Clark Gregg film? I don't think so. With Sam Rockwell and Angelica Houston and Kelly McDonald? I don't think so. It's the only other movie based on a Chuck Palahniuk novel. Uh, Chuck Palahniuk, author of Fight Club, obviously. Is it from the 90s? It's from 2008. Oh, then no, I had it's a real blockbuster movie for this guy. She plays Sam Rockwell's love interest in that movie. Kelly McDonald does. And she's his mom is in uh, a mental hospital or maybe just a regular hospital. Um, Yes, she's the doctor taking care of his mom. She basically convinces over the course of like their romantic relationship that Sam Rockwell needs to impregnate her so that she can use stem cells with his genetics in them to like cure his mom for whatever like her worsening Alzheimer's condition is. And the, 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 the punchline, spoilers for Chuck, by the way, the punchline of this movie is that she's actually just another patient of the hospital who pretends to be a doctor. But like, that's what I want out of Kelly McDonald is I want to see her get like the shitty girlfriend role in the raunchy comedy and like start out being like a very clean cut, like love interest and to yeah. just get more unhinged over the course of the entire movie. Cause she can get so unhinged. Right. Like that's which is funny. Cause she spent yeah. four years on boardwalk empire and they don't allow her to do that yeah. at all. <laughs> You just again, I'm just I, I maybe if it was a different actress playing this role, I'd be bummed that she kind of is just the woman who's getting pulled between various men. Uh, where I know Kelly McDonald can give me more. Like I said, I watched Train Spotting 2 last night. She's in one scene in Train Spotting 2. It's like one of the best scenes in the movie. It's one of the best scenes in the movie. She's only in like two scenes in Train Spotting One, and they're two yeah, of the they're, best and they're like the, the most like some of the yeah. most iconic scenes in that movie. Uh, again, she's probably in the best scene of No Country for Old Men. Yeah, no, she um, is. She is in the. Are we talking about her and Sugar at the yeah, end of that movie? Yeah. yeah, like that's the fucking scene in that movie. Um, she's so good in Anna Karenina. I just, she's I love that. Movie. I love that movie so much. She has like a cameo in Harry Potter, if I remember correctly. Yeah, like she essentially does. a cameo. Yeah, 
Did you um, see I Came By, the Baba Kanbari movie from last year? No. Weird movie, uneven movie, definitely does not work. Uh, but she plays, she's one of the leads of that movie, and I think she's very good. And like the the chunk of that movie that really focuses on her is very that 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 that's the chunk of that very strange and uneven movie that works the best. Let me just say what doesn't work in this one. Like, you know, I've been in a few relationships in my life with women. Sure. sure. I have at times felt like I was going to get physically attacked for like being late to dinner or something okay. of that nature. If I had put a woman that I was in a relationship in with, <laughs> if I had put a woman that I was in a relationship with in a situation where she got punched in the face by a guy wearing a mask and holding a gun to her head, <laughs> I just yeah, you cannot don't... imagine a reality <laughs> where I'm not going to jail. Or getting stabbed. I, like I just I think, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't I, it doesn't happen. I think to what degree it's believable is solely on the fact that, like I said, there's a lot of heightened stuff in this movie that I think lands because of the directing and the acting. Yeah. But you do the longer you're thinking about it. And I think that's why we're maybe sounding like we're a little more negative on this as we get into the second, third hour, honestly, of this recording. Um, is that y- you start to think about it and you're not like in the space of the movie right and then the movie starts feeling like wait what the fuck happens in this movie but when you're watching this movie i think mostly it all lands because it feels real but a lot of these like i think there are aspects of magnolia that feel similarly yeah i like this quite a bit more than magnolia one of my least favorite paul thomas anderson movies i really liked it when i saw it i haven't seen it since like 2013 yeah i think um uh, but not not to just a lot of the reviews compare this to Magnolia. Because they're very Magnolia different films. They're very, they're very different aesthetically. They're very different Magnolia in had just terms of yeah. like the the literary literarily, they're very different. Um, they're not attempting to do they're not attempting to do the same thing. This is very much more in that Altman camp. Um, I think Altman's a good comp. Like I said, I thought a lot about July. Honestly, I haven't made this much. I do see Guy Ritchie's fingerprints on this thing. Um, more, but this more is such in, a more. This is so humanist. Oh no, like that's John what I'm Crowley saying. Is just so no, 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 no. Yeah. But you you see this as like the less cartoonist pitch because because it, it exists in so many similar spaces as Guy Ritchie, but just not as intense. Way better than Guy Ritchie movies, but you can see them selling this movie as like remember Snatch, right? Yeah. Here's another like ensemble crime comedy mm-hmm. and we got colin farrell he's shooting Which for again, a week and you don't like, feel it because the movie's so diffused anyway this is is this the best performance he's given so far is phone booth the best performance he's given so far um i'm really i'm really just struck by him in this movie this I is the still guy. think about tigerland yeah often. i still really really like tigerland i'm yeah. i would i still feel blown away by what he did as like his breakthrough lead sure. performance in a, in a film. I, I'm just, I'm I still, this I still am kind of like very fond of his ability to both overtake the scene that he has with Max von Sydow and then get yes. blown out of the scene in minority report. Um, I, it, it 
to me, it's still remarkable that he leaves Daredevil being like infallible while everything else that's associated with that film is like dragged through the mud for <laughs> we're going sure. on two decades now. Sure. Um, but I think this is the most interesting use of him. Yes. I, well, I think the Veronica Garrett is a very interesting use. Um, I, I, all I know Veronica Garrett is kind of like, just like, a, this is like, this is the magic of movie making accidents. That yeah. like, he's willing to do a cameo for Joel Schumacher. He already has the shaved head because he's a daredevil. They put him in this moment where he's like, he gives her the Columbo moment of she understands how to track down where the money's yeah. being spent. Like, um, this is more like it seems planned out of the gate how he's gonna come across in this film. You know what I mean? I just sure I, I I get what you're saying. I just know that like two minutes into this movie, literally two minutes into this movie, when he's just doing that having that when he's sweet talking Carrie Condon, and I don't even know that that's the best performance he gives in this movie. I think like every time he pops in this movie, I'm like, oh, he's so locked in. But like. Truly, he hasn't even hit her in the face yet. He's just flirting with her. You know, I've seen him do this in real life a thousand times. But I'm watching this performance and I'm watching him like play it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I wanted to do a podcast about this guy. That's the exciting actor that I've been really waiting to see come through. And I know, you know, we've been doing this for months. It is it is worth remembering. We're, we're three years into his career, right? It's crazy. Like he's he 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 is still working out the kinks, but you're seeing the guy yeah. who's really. I think this is just. I mean, I obviously he's great in phone booth. He's great in phone booth. There's this is different though. Um, you know that. I know. I said you see the real life guy bleed through in this performance. That that clip, that very famous clip, listeners. I'm sure everyone listening to this knows what I'm talking about. Of him kissing the reporter mid interview at a red carpet. Connor, you know the one. Of uh, Colin Farrell flirting with and kissing a reporter. You do you not know what I'm I talking don't know about? If, I don't know if I know. What I'll, you're I'll send about. it to you when I'm when when we're done here. Um, but okay, a very a very famous moment of him, you know, being interviewed on a red carpet, uh, hits on the journalist, the woman who's hitting on him, then leans over and kisses her and walks off. Uh, went viral again on Twitter yesterday because it's like the oh. hottest thing anyone's ever seen. <laughs> Um, and I was just watching, I was like, oh yeah, this is the movie star juice, right? Like this is the, like, he's that guy off screen. He can't seem to bring it on screen. He can bring it on screen if he's playing a piece of shit. And that's such an interesting, like brain switch that happens almost in his head that he's only willing to turn on the juice. If, if he's going to disappear into the movie. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. I also think it's like, like John Crowley has made a bad film we we sure. can acknowledge that sure. but john crowley based off this based off brooklyn based off boyer yeah. which i really liked i don't know if yeah. i had a chance to say that um not a perfect film by any means but a, a very moving film um clearly has clearly has skill and clearly has comprehension of like human emotions and how people sure. interact with each other and like the motivations that guide people throughout their lives and the things that they want and the passions that they have and you could just tell when like he's able to tap into something when he's working with filmmakers like that, that he's just not capable of tapping into when he's just doing these yeah. getting thrown on screen, um, SWAT daredevil hearts war, even to some extent type jobs. Yeah. Um, all right. I do have to go see Bo is afraid. 
<laughs> um, Has that gotten good reviews? I haven't looked it up. Yeah. I, I just, have very little desire to watch it. I probably won't see it. I got it. It's it's it, it is solely the fact that the three-hour art film is getting a vanity IMAX release that makes me be like, all right, fine, fuck you. It, literally, I was like, I'm not gonna see this. And then they were like, it's an IMAX, and I was like, all right, fuck you, I'll go see it. Um uh unless you have anything else to say, do you have a game? Rapid fire, hereditary, yeah or nay. I liked it when it came out, but I don't know how I feel about it. Midsummer. I've told you what I think about Midsummer. Well, I'll tell. I'll say it again. I fucking hate Midsummer. Do you have a game? Because I I do not have a game this week. I do. Collider has the top ten movie ensemble cast of all time. You want to guess what they are? (laughs) This is Collider, by the way. This is Collider. Yeah, bro. You ready to guess this list, man? Uh, okay, Magnolia's on there. Magnolia. Magnolia, I don't believe is on here. What the shit? Yeah. Uh, I'm it's very tired there. today, in case you haven't noticed. My brain through. isn't really working. Nope, no Magnolia. Fuck. Pulp Fiction. No Pulp Fiction. What? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let, let start start talking me through it. All right, we got um, a Spielberg, we got uh, a, Spielberg. a Tony Scott, we got oh, True Romance, True Romance is Tony okay, Scott, so that's the cool yeah, Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Gary Oldman, Dennis Hopper, yeah. Samuel L. Jackson, James Gandolfini, Brad Pitt, um, other people don't even talk about them. We got a Michael Mann, Heat. We got yeah, it's Heat, Your fucking obviously. beloved Heat. <laughs> obviously, it's fucking. Heat. Did you ever read Heat too? I have it in my backpack. I haven't had a chance to actually start reading it. I'll probably start uh, reading it tonight. I was actually thinking about it earlier. I was like, I really got to start reading again. We, we should talk when you've read Heat too. Well, I, I definitely want to finish it before we get to the uh, the Miami Vice episode. Because you know, you know, it's basically the third of the Miami Vice Black Hat trilogy, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're are they making it with Austin Butler? Like, is that the thing that's happening? No, it, it sounds like they're making it with Adam Driver. I don't know what the Butler status is. Okay, it's the right casting. I would kind of love to see Butler. Austin Butler in something like that. You man seems like the kind of guy who knows how to use Butler. Like, yeah, so yes, yes, yeah. and especially trust me when you read it and you understand what's going on in there. It's the it's the Pacino of it all is weird to me. I wish Michael Mann made a fucking James Bond movie. Like, I don't. You know, I just think no. Michael Mann more than like any other director just knows like this male man is hot, and I just want him to be hot uh, on the camera. You, you know, know who I mean? should make the next James Bond movie is Martin Campbell. But if oh, Martin Campbell's again, unavailable, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but look into your heart. Okay. And I'm right. Adrian Lyne should make the next James Bond movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I, I'll give it a shot. If it's yeah. like within that. Within that, yeah. if it's not ri- if the screenplay isn't written by Sam Levinson, I, like, I'll be okay. You seem to think I am pro Sam Levinson when I, in fact, was the first person to hate Sam Levinson. Sorry, I was the second person to hate Sam Levinson because the first one was probably Barry. I invented <laughs> hating Sam Levinson. Okay, I was out there early. I saw Assassination Nation, and I was like, I'm gonna hate this guy for the rest of my life. 
you along with that um, quote unquote white bitch from the LA Times, right? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, you got a Terrence Malick on the list. It's actually number thin one. Red, on the list. Yeah. Thin red line. Just to go through Brad Pitt, Al Pacino, Sean Penn, Adrian Brody, George Clooney, Bruce Willis. Uh, like I mean, half those of people, other people who are cut out of the movie. Yeah, and half those like, people are cut yeah. out of that movie, too. Uh, you have another war movie. Uh, Same Private Ryan? N- yes, Same Private Ryan is the Spielberg. You have another war movie other than that. Longest Day? No. Bullshit. Um, okay. I got to say fuck you to Collider. Uh, <laughs> not one that is written about. Not one that is brought up in conversation often. Okay. Can I just tell you who's in The Longest Day? Yeah, yeah. The Longest Day isn't even like... Partic- the whole point of that movie was they were just getting every... That movie is like The Expendables. Like, that was uh, the whole idea. Uh, you know? Are, are you ready? Yeah. I'm not even naming everyone, okay? Emin O'Brien, Henry Fonda, Robert Richard, Robert Ryan, John Crawford, Eddie Albert, John Wayne, Rod Steiger... Uh, Tom Tyron, Gary Collins, Red Button, Salmoneo, Roddy McDowell, George Siegel, uh, Fabian. Uh, who else we got? We got Trevor Reed. We got a bunch of British actors who aren't as famous, but still, when I when do you see how long I had to go till I said John Wayne? Most impressive thing about that film was nobody died of alcohol poisoning while they were making yeah. that movie. <laughs> yeah, um, like everyone's is- in that movie. <laughs> there is another Paul Thomas Anderson, um, not Magnolia. Okay, it's an is easy it Boogie. Pick. Yeah, is it Boogie Nights? Yeah, sure. Number ten. Yeah, um, there's the a here. fifth best Paul Thomas Anderson movie, maybe. Is but you like Boogie? Uh, is Magnolia your least favorite? Probably, or The Master. I like, or Boogie like Hard Eight, which is barely a movie. I think Hard Eight is my least favorite because it's just like Hard Eight is just like buy your stock now before we fucking take off. Licorice Pizza. Ball rolling. Licorice Number Pizza. One. Yeah. Inherent Vice. Phantom Thread. I love Phantom Thread. And then I'm probably going to go Boogie Nights or Punch Drunk Love for fourth. And then whatever one I don't pick is fifth. I think I actually think that I just don't want to do this because all his movies are fucking great. Sure. Sure. sure, sure, But I do like I'm kind of one of those guys that like it makes me feel really bad because I'm like, this makes me boring. And every time, like, I agree with the consensus of the time, I'm like, just say it, just say it, just say it. But there will be blood, I think, is probably, yeah. I just love the I drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. That movie has zero Heim sisters in it. That is true. None of the Heim sisters are in that movie. Licorice Pizza was my number two movie of 2020. That's insane. Because it's the best movie of 20. Wait, what was your number one? If you fucking say Dune. No, you fucking say Dune. Dune. If you fucking say it wasn't Dune. Dune. It wasn't Dune. Let me go into my I cannot remember off the top of my head. So let me go into Yeah, because you don't uh, like it as much as Licorice Pizza. Letterbox. Uh another war movie. Because I just can't get the years right uh, from memory. So I have to look at it. My my number one movie was Worst Person in the World. Okay, that was my number two. Uh, yeah. I, I can't be. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Another movie that, like, I'm just sitting there, tears are just rolling it's down just my cheeks so much. It's fucking yeah. best movie, dude. <laughs> oh, it's so fucking good. 
Um, we are oddly in sync. Today. I know. It's just so like <laughs> crazily in sync. Yeah. But then, like, you probably have Dune in your top five, and I have Matrix. 4 no, I don't have. I, Dune's not on I'm my best of the year list. Yeah, because it my, sucks. My top five is Worst Person in the World, Licorice Pizza, French Dispatch, Minari, and Red Rocket. You counted Minari as uh, I did because it came out after it came out in theaters after. Uh, yeah, but it was commercially yeah. available to stream in December of 2020. Oh, well, maybe I'll change my list. That's what then, I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Then number, I'm saying. If, I take it, if I take it out, then About Endlessness is number five. Oh, I never saw About Endlessness because I don't really like Roy Anderson. It's very Roy Anderson. Yeah, sure. Like, if you're not into him, it's not going to yeah. happen. Then I have Titan, Judas and the yeah. Black Messiah, which is a similar thing. Judas well, that one Messiah did come out in 2021, unambiguously. Yeah. Uh, Petite Maman and The Green Knight. Yeah. And Passing and Power of the Dog. Yeah, we have like half the same. I keep going. Parallel Mothers, Nomad Land, Annette, Benedetta, uh, Drive My Car, which uh, I'm not so high on now. Um, Flee, the documentary, Wife of a Spy. Wife of a Spy. Interesting. Yeah. Weird movie. Very weird movie. But oddly, like I got to the end and I was like, yep, I'm in. I, I, yeah, no, hey, I I, I, yeah. I, 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 I'll just give you mine. Licorice Pizza, Worst Person, French Dispatch. So we're, we're in agreement. Yeah. Drive my car. Canonically the top three of the year. It's canonically the top three of the yeah. year. Drive my car, Matrix 4, Power of the Dog, uh, Card Counter. Card Counter. Fucking yeah. Card Counter. Passing Judas. And then I don't think you really liked this one. Langston hated this one. Uh, Bergman Island. I, I haven't seen Bergman Island. <sighs> yeah. It's fucking next level. Bergman Island, I, I like it's in that thing where it's like eventually within the next five years, it's the same as the Spielberg thing. It's like, I will watch, I will rewatch all the Bergman films and then I'll watch Bergman Island. You know what? Here's, here's what I'll it. say about Bergman Island. What? Not really about Bergman. Doesn't it kind of hate Bergman? That's what I hear. It doesn't hate Bergman. But it's no, kind of no. like this is overrated. Or... No, it's more no. complicated than that. Okay. But at the same time, for a movie in which for the first half of that movie, people are like discussing the minutiae of Bergman films in every line. Weirdly not about Bergman. Oh. You'll get it if you watch it. But I'm saying like I am kind of a Bergman neophyte. You really don't need to know that much about Bergman to appreciate that movie. Bergman Bergman stands in for the idea of the canon in that movie. Well, I have an excuse to watch a sure. lot of them later sure. in this later you in the Colin just... Farrell run. I'm gonna have an excuse to rewatch a, a lot of the Bergmans. Did he write Miss Julie? No, it's just tangentially Liv related. Ullman, yeah, Lee Ullman, and obviously Alf Stolberg yeah. is like his big mentor. Yeah. Okay. So. What's this war movie? What What war is it? It is, uh, I think, I've never seen this movie, actually. I think it's World War II. Where am I? Oh, that doesn't help. It's it's so ma- it was made in 1977. It's a mix. Uh, it's World War II. It's World War II. It was made in 1977. What it's a mix fuck? of American and British actors. What the fuck? I, yeah. uh, oh, A Bridge Too Far? It's A Bridge Too Far, yeah. I... As James Caan, Robert Redford, Gene Hackman, Michael Caine, Anthony Hopkins, yeah, yeah. Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. I... Uh... I once had a roommate who was like a crazy military history buff, like especially World War II. And he he that's like his favorite movie ever made because apparently just like all the equipment is like real. Oh, <laughs> like it's like real tanks they pulled out of storage. Like he's like he and he he just goes on and went on and on about how much like the logistically complicated 
like the restaging of those battles were and how accurate everything is. Wow. All right. Might have to, might have to pull that yeah. out. Um, number four is a film from 1974. You have mentioned the remake of this film a on this remake. podcast, I believe. Uh, maybe it has an ensemble. Podcast. The film is, of course, uh, Le Crash. <laughs> the French. <laughs> Le Crash. No, it's uh, it is. No, no, no. You didn't mention this film. You mentioned the someone that we talked about on this podcast portrayed the writer of the novel that this film is based on. What the in a fuck? Film. Yeah. What the fuck? Uh, oh wow! I'm not gonna. It's Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express. Oh my god! Of course, yeah. of course. Sydney uh, Lumet directed, starring Lauren McCall, Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman wins her third Connery, Oscar, and she Anthony starts her Perkins. speech by saying, "Thank you. It's always nice to win an Oscar," which yeah. is hilarious. <laughs> and then she spends. Have you ever seen that speech? She spends. I have. Being, yeah. She spends the entire speech apologizing to Valentina Corteza for beating her. It's so funny. I love Ingrid Bergman. All right, number five. Number five, you already guessed, is True Romance. Number six, you already guessed, Saving Private Ryan. Number seven, Stars. It's our early film for somebody we've talked about on this podcast extensively. Big, big time. Today? Today. No, not today. Okay. Yeah. 1983 is the release date. Costner? No. no, not Costner. Not Bruce. Someone we've talked about more extensively than Costner. Gabriel Bott? <laughs> <laughs> no. Close Cole Hauser? No. Of- <laughs> oh, of course, Linda Fiorentino. What's Linda Fiorentino? <laughs> Lisa Valentina. No, he's he's not the lead of this film. It's like a very early sighting of him. Is it someone sudden- who's been in one of these movies or is it just someone we keep mentioning? He's he's in oh yeah Magnolia. Yeah, and he's also in Minority Report. Um, and he's also in Minority. He's also in Minority yeah. Report. Is it Taps or is it all the right moves? It's neither of those. Bigger biggest director in the world. At this oh, moment. it's the Outsiders. It's the yeah, Outsiders, yeah. of course. Outsiders, I wasn't even thinking the ensemble. Yeah. Ralph Macchio, Amelia Estevez, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe. We Diane do Lee. love talking Tom. We do. We talk about Tom every episode. <laughs> um, uh, 1992 also stars someone that we've talked about extensively on this podcast. Not, not the, player. the player. Yeah. It is the player? No, not the player. No. Started off as a stage play, was adapted. Glenn Gary. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. Uh, fun fact about the player, uh, for a long time, held the record for the most Oscar winners and nominees in a single film. Really? Because there's so many cameos by people playing themselves. Uh, do What's you know the what record holder now? Uh, you're gonna hate this. It's uh, Avengers Endgame. Oh, good god! And here's the thing at least that sucks. At least three of the Oscar winners of Avengers Endgame have zero lines of dialogue and are only in one shot, and it's the same shot. Is it who's it? Natalie Portman, Anthony Hopkins. I'm, no, no, I'm, no, I'm not counting uh, yeah. Portman, Portman's in it, but like, sorry, only two. Michael Douglas and Marissa Tomei only show up in the tracking shot at the funeral at the end. Oh, God. Samuel Jackson. You want want to hear the list of uh, winners in Avengers Endgame? Yeah, go for it. If you go nominees, it's even crazier because you get like fucking Taika. Yeah. Um, All right. Academy Award winners in the cast of Avengers Endgame. 
Give me a second because I'm literally just scanning them list. Brie Larson. Yep. Because <laughs> it, it's a lot of tiny people. So Tilda I Swinton. do love Brie Larson in that movie. I, not Avengers Endgame. In, in a room, I do. Yeah, great. Yeah, just a, a supporting performance. Natalie Portman. Yeah. Uh, Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei. I'm sorry, I forgot he is a winner. Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi. What did he Michael Douglas. For? Oh, he won for Jojo sure. Rabbit? No, he won. Oh, oh, he did win for Jojo Rabbit, yeah. Yeah. Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. William Hurt. I think there's one more. Gwyneth Paltrow. Robert Redford. <laughs> Robert uh, Redford's in Avengers Endgame? Yes, he is. Oh, when they go back to... Uh, yeah, yeah he's actually quite... He's actually in yeah. it. Is the he actually thing. He has a line, doesn't he? He has several lines. Yeah. He has a whole scene. So that is that is nine Oscar winners who are in Avengers Endgame. And that's not counting Renner, Downey Jr., Carrie Condon, Scarlett Johansson, Samuel L. Jackson, that like every everyone incidentally in that movie has an Oscar nomination. I feel like I feel like Don Corleone is look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> <You know laughs> what I think about Avengers Endgame. <laughs> a good movie. A movie I quite like. It is, but it like destroyed everything that we love in the world of yeah. movies. It, it invented yeah. COVID. It invented COVID. Yeah. Uh, number nine is uh, an all-in film from 1993. Probably the most shortcuts. Uh, yeah. Good movie. Good movie. I like it more than the player. Altman, I struggle with his films from the 70s and 80s because I understand that they were revolutionary in the way that they use sound. Um, yeah. the multi-track sound design but you due, due to the like early technology that they're working with i find them so disorienting uh, like i cannot i cannot distinguish where the where certain dialogue is coming from on the screen and i just feel like i'm watching those films through a haze like i feel like i'm inebriated while i'm watching them and i cannot make sense of what's happening did you listen to the swat episode i did yeah does it not kind of sound like an altman film it does a little bit. <laughs> it does a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, but almond films are like even more so because you're looking at this like densely packed, like Nashville. Nashville, you're just like in rooms the whole time, densely packed. You're just hearing conversations happen, but they're all like, they're all just like minor variations of volume. And there's yeah. very little in terms of spatial orientation. Yeah. And I'm just like looking at the screen. I'm like, I have no idea who's talking or what's going on. I understand that they're revolutionary. I, I, I love Altman. Like you can't not like, yeah, I, I never, I never really have that problem. Cause you know what I'm thinking when I'm watching Nashville, damn, I'm watching Nashville. I'm yeah, having a good true. time. It's fucking yeah. Nashville. What's, what's your favorite the- Altman? Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. Nashville is a perfect movie. Nashville is his like this is the story of America. It's movie. the fucking yeah. best. Oh. Is that the first appearance of Jeff Goldblum in a movie? If I understand correctly. Mm, He's on maybe. the motorcycle. I know, I know. I fucking know where Jeff Goldblum is in fucking Nashville. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fucking idiot. I like, uh, I love uh, Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye. I love The Long Goodbye. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I knew this. I knew this. I knew this. And I forgot, but I knew this. Jeff Goldblum's first movie is Death Wish. Oh. He's one of the really? thugs in Death Wish. <laughs> yeah. 
He's also in California Split the year before. Uh, has a very small role in California Split. The the Almond movie. One another one of Almond's best. Okay, what's number ten? Oh, sorry, I left page. That's you okay. guessed number ten. Uh, yeah, you guessed number ten. It was uh, Boogie Nights. Oh, so we I got all ten. Yeah, you got all ten. Yeah. Yay! All right, gang. I'm kind of getting a little loopy because I'm very tired. Uh, yeah. Connor, anything left you want to say about intermission? Well, I just wanted to say that it's crazy that this cinematographer went from this film to 12 years later doing Ida. I know he's done a lot yeah. of Pavlikowski's other Yeah, I films. so um, I haven't seen the early Pavlikowski. I've only seen Ida and Cold War. The earlier ones like Last Resort and My Summer yeah. of Love are much more of a he still like you can tell that his sensibility is still there but they're much more in terms of like the cinematic melodrama that you associate with like larger budget yes that's that's what i was and ida for him was like um like ida for him was like a true moment of like i am disillusioned with the art that i'm engaging with it's fake and i want to make something that's more true to who i am yeah this is my point though is that ida i'm gonna it's ida buddy um sorry it's okay. Ida has two cinematographers because it's this yeah. cat and then it's Lucas Cole, I think it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, but then Lucas Cole goes on to shoot Cold War solo. And Cold War, if anything, has a little bit more of that style. Like it's it, it, they're 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 pushing it further. So what do you tell me? Like, oh, it's I I had the same thought. I was like, oh, it's crazy that this guy shot this and then shot Ida because Ida is so austere. But then you're like, did he shoot who who gets the authorship for the cinematography credit there you get what i'm saying no no i do i get what you lucas cole is just such an intense style i just want to bring that up because john crowley spoke about in the interview that i read with him that it was like important for him to have a foreign cinematographer and a foreign editor because he wanted yes he wanted to disrupt the like boringness of ireland of like that Irish Lucas people Zoll. just see Ireland as it is, and he wanted people from elsewhere to like kind of tune into the alienness of Ireland that people from other parts of the world like kind of are bombarded with when they enter the country. I find that interesting. Like, there's not a lot of filmmakers that I think would take that stance. I think there's a lot of filmmakers that would be like, "We're trying to make the most Irish film. We need like yeah. the most Irish, the most stereotypically Irish." Uh, people yeah. to be a part Martin, of this. Martin McDonough. <laughs> Martin, Martin McDonough. <laughs> uh, brief, brief sidebar. It's it's Lucas Zoll. Sorry. Um, did you know he shot the Jonathan Glazer Holocaust drama? Yeah. That's playing Con. Yeah. That feels like a real Connor movie right there. I saw Cold War. So Rochester, New York has a Polish film festival every year. Ooh. And I saw Cold War they somehow got Cold War to play there in like 2017, I think. Like before the film was finished. Even like- that movie came out Christmas 2018. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm getting my time mixed up. Maybe it played like very early 2018 at the at the Polish Film Festival in Rochester. I saw it like months before I even saw like writing about the film on the internet. And I didn't mm, I had seen Ida, but I don't think I knew Pavlikowski by name by that point. So it was like, it was the big film at the festival and I went to go see Cold War and I was just 
blown away. It's also like a moment in my life where I personally was like very emotionally devastated and I like needed something like that to kind of speak to <laughs> what I was feeling. And I saw it and I remember like leaving and telling everybody I knew I was like, I saw this crazy movie at the Polish Film Festival and um, people didn't like other people who knew who like know the film world that we're both in like thought I was making something up. They thought I was making a project up because no. it had no, there was no press about it yet at that moment in time. It was so strange. It was one of the strangest experiences in like watching a film that I've ever had. Yeah. Uh, Kate Blanchett, you fucked up by not giving Cold War the Palm Door. Uh, Cold War is the best. Cold War is the... He needs to make another movie. I think Cold War is the first Criterion collection I've ever bought. Wow. Yeah. That's a crazy fact. I didn't have any. I I was so broke for so long. Like I no no no. I'm not. I'm, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not judging. I just think that's a crazy thing to say. Uh, Is it that Cold crazy? War. Do you remember what yours was? Your first criteria? Oh my! First, I think it was probably do the right thing. Yeah, deserved. Uh, just gonna bring this back on here. I just pulled up the list I made three years ago of the uh, hundred best movies of the 2010s uh i have cold war two spots below brooklyn <laughs> a very my, fitting capper where's my to this episode what's your top five 2010 of the five. of the decade yeah uncut gems sorry sorry before midnight uh 20th century women if beale street could talk spring breakers <laughs> This is where we break. Dude. This Five is where we one. break. This is where we break big time. I look yeah. at the list I made in, at the end of 2019, and it's Moonlight number one. Moonlight's my number six. Just wait, just wait, dude. Yeah. That's not the one that's gonna break you. Blade Runner 2049. Go two. fuck yourself. <laughs> Blue Valentine number three. Yeah, Twelve sorry. Years a Slave number four. Black Swan Ugh. number five. Ugh. I should clarify. Gems is number five. Spring Breakers is number one for me. Uh, would you like to know the movie that sits between Brooklyn and Cold War on my list? Sure. It's a little movie called The Adventures of Tintin. Better than any Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> All right. That's been our episode. Uh, Connor, plug the Instagram. It's at above the title pod. Uh, yep. Sounds good. Follow us there. Some Connor, stuff some good stuff week. there. Yep. Uh, sorry for a little low energy this week. I'm so busy at work. Uh, this is a good movie, though. I'm going to loop back to what you said earlier, though. Uh, if we're going to burn like a one, like, see it recommendation for any of these movies, I feel like this is the one I want people to go on and check out. Because it yeah. is like a hidden gem of a movie, even if it's very uneven at times. I do, too. I feel like because as much as I, I don't know, I really like Tiger Land. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, what a crazy what? fucking movie that we saw. It's like the Libatique cinematography like mixed up in it all. Michael Shannon just being like, you gotta burn yeah. your testicles with the... <laughs> it's in that movie for 30 Art. seconds. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know, this one, this one may be more, I guess what I was saying was there's tons and tons of war movies and Vietnam movies and I don't think yeah. you have to see that one. I think there are very little films like this. Yeah, they're very few, especially uh, Irish ones. I think if you want to get a good look at like the the atmosphere of Ireland in 2003, this is probably a good good one to go with. For sure.
Anyway, we'll be back next week, ideally, definitely, uh, with uh, Home at the End of the World, uh, Colin's first big Oscar play and Colin's first big Oscar riff, a movie I am very excited to talk about, a haircut I am even more excited to talk about. Have you seen it before? No, I just, I no. I have not. I'm actually, that's why I, I want, this is one of the ones I'm looking forward to watching for the first time. You specifically that, told me not to watch it until this week. I specifically told you not to look up what his hair is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's pointedly it. it. Yeah. I got spoiled on the hair. So I, I, watched, I right now I have no idea what his hair looks like in that movie. Yeah, just and I'm going to watch that movie like an hour from now. I know. You're going to yeah. text me because <laughs> you're going to text me early and you're going to freak out. Um, he said on the Graham Norton show that the his consenting to wear that wig in that movie is the greatest sign that he had a serious drug problem. Oh, God. Until then, everyone in this movie is kind of nice. I don't really want any of them to fuck off. So yeah. I guess fuck the motion picture, the gold bench. Yeah. I'm going to be right back. Here we are above the title family. Cole has a special announcement to make, which is he rewatched the town last night and he wants everybody to know that it is maybe the most important American film in the history of American cinema. It says more about everything that we are you saying something. No. What'd you say? <laughs> <laughs>